Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen, to another Faith Unaltered presentation. As you can see, we have a panel of guests with us tonight, a plethora of friends and brothers in the Lord, as I like to say. We've got Joshua Davison, my co-host David Russell, Joshua Sherman, Dr. Jerry Shepard, and the church split guys themselves, Brian Bodie and Will Hess. This isn't a debate or anything like that. But I'm so happy whenever two people can get or or the opposite views can kind of get together and and really dialogue with each other. I think that's the best part of of debate whenever a debate happens. And I think it makes for really, really good conversation and fruitful conversation to maybe push this issue a little bit further in, in a good direction. And so we've invited Dr. Shepard, we've invited Will, and we've invited everyone that you see here. I know Joshua Sherman has been, this has been a topic that we have been bouncing uh, ideas uh, forth, you know, back and forth with wrestling with. And Brian, I can re respect your uh, relationship with Will because Josh and I have that exact same relationship. He's nice. the non-Calvinist. I'm the Calvinist, right? I, uh, I haven't changed my view yet, but, uh, <laughs> but we've been back and forth for about, oh man, it's been about five years now. Five years. And Notice then, the word yet. Yet. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And <laughs> I just heard that one of you is right and one of you is wrong. <laughs> well, Thank that's you. David, but... but, <laughs> <laughs> but David's uh, always right. It's it's all... It's hard to be always right, you know? It's, it's a great thing. But, yeah. Da Davidson, I take classes just, with Will, so, I mean... Well, there you go. Jo yeah, Joshua Davidson, um, my friend, uh, it, just every time you guys start debating on the topic, just tell him as soon as he starts arguing you, like you can change your mind freely. He has conceded the entire yes. argument. Cool, cool. <laughs> it's been you know, happening for years, but and it, was, it was predestined, right? After uh, ever since we started, so after I developed a relationship with Tim Stratton, like he's the guy I was full on determinist. And now I can happily say that I am, uh, I hold the libertarian free will. And so we'll see how that kind of mingles with, with the Calvinism as we go on and uh, go forth. But yeah, Tim and Josh have really been the guys that have changed my mind on that. And then David jumped on board about two years ago and he's just been great all the way around. We wrestle, we challenge each other on different things. I spent a week at his house and literally we talk theology about the entire time. And so I was blessed to be able to spend a week with him and, uh, and, and really just dive into things. But gentlemen, Will, I know you said that you uh, wanted to answer some things. So on the last episode that we did with Dr. Shepard and Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah had brought, and, and I'll plug all of these um, these videos in the description. I'll send a link to them. But Jeremiah went over, spent the better part of the second half going over some quotes from church history. And I know, Sherman, you had mentioned some things about those quotes. And Will, you wanted to address some of those things. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the floor to do that now. And then maybe we can rewind a little bit and inter engage with some of the things that uh, Dr. Shepard had mentioned on the episode that we did with him. But Will, I'll give you the floor. Sherman, you can jump in uh, after him if you want to. And then let me know your thoughts on this. And we'll just go from there, gentlemen. Sounds good. Um, so a couple of things about it. One, I again thank you guys for inviting me back. Apparently, I didn't burn the bridge down hard enough, so we're going to have to go in for... Light that match. <laughs> Try harder. <laughs> so, no, a couple of things. Uh, last time, uh, when I was first on, I made the claim, and as a claim I still believe and still hold to, that the early church did not hold to penal substitutionary atonement as it is defined as like a vicarious penal substitutionary atonement. And when I say that, I mean that God satisfied his wrath by punishing Jesus in the stead of sinners. Um, so that is, that's a, a 
more of my was my claim. And then Jeremiah and I wish he could have been here because this would have been a fun conversation for him and I to have. No, but then Jeremiah said, well, that's basically entirely untrue. And he said he had some quotes that he wanted to bring to the table. And I think there's some ma major things that were overlooked in those quotes. So I wanted to address that. But I also wanted to address really quick. I was accused of having, quote, a bias. Uh, which is why I can't read into what I, you know, oh, well, Will can't see it because he's clearly biased. Uh, for one, I've held a penal substitutionary atonement for 29 years in my 31 years of living. So uh, I, if nothing else, I had to disprove my bias. Penal substitutionary atonement at two? Bro. What? <laughs> nothing. Your Go ahead. Theological mastermind <laughs> in, the, in, the, in diapers. This is why we invited him. <laughs> Go ahead. Huh? Sorry. 20, oh yeah, I see what you're saying. Ha. Okay. I was like, what? Um, see, again, I only I'm running on like four hours of sleep, so this is not gonna go well. He's a theologian, <laughs> not a mathematician, guys. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair I, enough. I believe in the Trinity. That's bad math by definition. <laughs> <laughs> one times one times one. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, so uh, and one of the things I, I whenever I hear someone say, oh well, you just have a bias, is one is like, well, first off, I actually changed my mind on this, so clearly I'm not. But also, we all have biases. So I just, I, I think that's kind of one of those like almost amateur things where it's like, let's not call each other biased. Like, of course we're biased. We all are biased toward our beliefs. The question is, are we willing to change our bias? That's, that should be the question. Uh, like whenever someone's like, I'm just being objective here. I'm like, are, are we being objective though? Um, uh, <laughs> we all have a bias, right? That's the thing. Um, and I think it's okay to admit when, when you're biased, but anyhow. So I first wanted to address his t the, this, uh, the quote from Athanasius. And then I wanted to work my way into what he said about St. Hillary because those are the two biggest uh, church fathers that seem to affirm penal substitutionary atonement. And now one of the things I've said, uh, I said in what I was on originally was a lot of times, and Sherman, you could probably uh, echo this, is that a lot of people confuse the, the language of like died for you as definitely meaning a full-on vicarious penal substitution. But you can mm -hmm. die for someone without such things uh, being necessitated, right? I just watched The Count of Monte Cristo, and when Abe dies and uh, he jumps into his body bag, he takes him, I was like, in a sense, he died for him, but no one poured wrath out on him or vicariously punished him. So, uh, But let me just quickly go over this, and I appreciate your guys' patience as I've rambled. So in uh, Athanasius' Athanasius's letter to uh, Marcellinus, I always I screw up their names all the time, but it is what it is. I'm a Yankee. All right, so on his uh, interpretation of the Psalms, he, he talks about, he's talking to his friend here in a letter, and he says in Psalm 2, they say X, Y, Z. Then Psalm 22, they say this. He talks about, you know, of course, I, they, they pierce my hands and my feet. Then he goes on, and the part that was kind of like where rubber met the road is he says, Psalm 88 and 69, again, speaking in the Lord's own person, tell us further that he suffered these things, not for his own sake, but for ours. Thou has made thy wrath to rest upon me, says the one, and the other adds, I paid them things I never took. For he did not die as being himself liable to death. He suffered for us and bore, him, bore in himself the wrath that was the penalty of our transgressions. And Isaiah says himself bore our weaknesses. Now, it is a pretty uh, well-accepted like uh, agreement amongst scholarship. There are others like even William Lane Craig who has pushed against us and I love him. Um, but that penal substitutionary atonement didn't exist uh, until the Reformation and is built mostly off of Athanasius satisfaction theory. Here's the issue here. So, and so. 
Uh, so, yes, sorry. Did I say Athanasius? You did. Yeah, because you're reading it. <laughs> ah, because it's right yeah. in front of me, of course. So the thing is, is uh, with this, when it says Psalm 88, you have to remember, first off, he's writing, and he's just quoting quickly Psalms, out of like basically out of context, letting him know how it works. So he's like, hey, this means this. And he says, of the what it says, there thou hast made thy wrath to rest upon me, says the one, Psalm 88, and then Psalm 69, he goes on to talk about as well, and he quickly quotes that. So he is quoting various parts out of context to make a point. Psalms are poetic and filled with hyperbole and metaphor. Like Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? But then at the end, we see that God rescues him. So he's not really forsaken at all, only appears that way at the beginning, then he's not. And that's why he actually quotes it in Aramaic, when he says, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani, because it actually keeps with the cadence of what Psalm 22 is trying to get at. Then Psalm 88 says, states, uh, states that your wrath rests upon me. And sure, Psalm 88 says that. And many think that this automatically must mean God poured his wrath, fury, and anger on Jesus. However, I do not think that is a proper understanding of Athanasius's point. He is only briefly quoting the Psalms, just like Jesus did with Psalm 22. And people agree, Jesus is making reference that Psalm 22 is messianic to show its application. Upon inspecting Psalm 88, I think it should be noted that this is a psalm of anguish. This is a person who feels abandoned by God. This is why in verse 11, he's, he also says, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or in verse 12, are we, your wonders known in the darkness? The psalmist is clearly suffering in anguish and concludes, this must be God's judgment upon me, and he is the cause of all my suffering. Yet the psalmist has a moment of doubt, and then he goes, but are your wonders still known in the darkness? Wonder if God's light can still shine at all. Perhaps it is not God punishing him after all, is almost the thought in Psalm 88. And that this whole point in this psalm is to wrestle with someone, someone's conflicting emotions when expressing or experiencing distress. It reminds me kind of of Job's friends when they wrongfully attribute his suffering to God's judgment. Uh, and that just wasn't what was happening. And Psalm 88 seems to be kind of getting along the same lines there. Or like in uh, Isaiah 50, uh, 53, 1, where it says, we considered him stricken by God. So in Hebrew, uh, it's bringing up water imagery as well. Like that's the whole thing, like your wrath rests upon me when he talks about that, but he talks about the waves and, and how the word rest means like it is, it's like a burden in a sense, not something being necessarily poured out, but like a burden, like it's a weight, he feels grievous. So let alone, and so the point here, and if I actually talked to some of my uh, Jewish friends who speak Hebrew, they said, no, no, the whole point here is water imagery. This rhymes in Hebrew <laughs> and it has a cadence to it for that, for that purpose. But PSA teaches that God not only takes pleasure, but is satisfied in this outpouring of wrath. And it's, we already know that, you know, Jesus takes, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So I think that's a problem there. But anyway, in Hebrew, it is normal to exaggerate with hyperbole to deliver a point, right? Jesus says that if your eye offends you, gouge it out. And Psalms, then, but then Athanasius quotes Psalm 69 right afterwards, right? He, we focus on this, well, thy wrath rests upon me and go, must mean God completely poured out his wrath. But he's saying Psalm 88 and then of the other Psalm 69. So he's actually literally just saying how one makes him, it seems like he's being forsaken by God. But really Psalm 69 is, begins again with water imagery. And only this time it follows a similar structure to Psalm 22, where he feels forsaken. He's surrounded by his enemies, but then his faith is restated as God actually redeems him from his enemies, as he uses both to describe Christ's quote, own person. So essentially it is not God's wrath that rests upon him. It only seemed that way from a human perspective, like in Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53. 
Um, so flyby comments uh, by Athanasius in a poetic book uh, in a letter to a friend probably is not the best place to get his complete view of this. So I really quickly wanted to just read one part of uh, what he said in the incarnation, and then I'll quickly deal with St. Hilary because there's a lot more I have in here, but I'm just gonna quickly say this. Um, he says, uh, let's see, and this is in chapter eight on the incarnation. Further, the increasing wickedness of men and how belittle and little they had increased it to an intolerable pitch against themselves. And seeing lastly, how all men were un under, he says, the penalty of death he took pity on our race and had mercy on our infirmity and condescended to our corruption and unable to bear that death should have the uh, should have the mastery so that the creature should perish and his father's handiwork in men be all for nothing. He takes unto himself a body and one which has no not different a different sort from ours. And then he goes on in probably some of the most uh, Christus Victor terminology you can hear this is further kindness of the savior having become man to our sake he has not only offered his own body to death on our behalf and there is representative language there right not substitutionary necessarily that he might redeem all from death but also desiring to display to us his own heavenly and perfect way of living he expressed this in his very self it was as knowing how easily the devil might deceive us that he gave us for our peace of mind the pledge of his own victory that he had won on our behalf and if you fast forward he then says also on his interpretation of the psalms at the end of that letter he goes the lord through his betrayal entered in his passion by which he should redeem us and by the which he triumphed gloriously okay so then really quickly and then we'll move on and you guys everyone can say whatever they need to say can Sorry. i talk a little bit about how about that particular passage which in one? athanasius when he talks about the penalty of death oh is sherman is that you talking sorry i have you a tiny yeah. little it is. yeah yeah um yeah. So, uh, because um, he used uh, Saint Hilary used a similar imagery, I was going to discuss that. But penalty of death is just simply saying, like, because he did not sin, right? He's innocent. So the wages of sin, the cost of sin. One could say the penalty of sin is death, but he was innocent, so he surrendered himself to death. Um, so he went under, though innocent, he suffered death, which is what somebody who only sins should suffer but he does not sin, so he does should not suffer, but he willingly just hands himself over to death so that he might destroy it and triumph over it gloriously. So um, what I wanted to point out is that, that that particular translation brings in, and this is very common, um, but it brings in ideas that may not necessarily be in the original text. Um, so the word when we talk about under penalty of the corruption of death, um, actually, you look at the Greek behind it, it's about owing something. It's about liability. Uh, and when when Athanasius talks about this, and he actually gets into this uh, elsewhere in the Incarnation, he talks about this. He says, um, here then is the second reason why the word dwelt among us, namely that having proved his Godhead by his works, he might offer the sacrifice on behalf of all, surrendering his own temple to death in place of us. Surrendering it to death in place of us. Not, right. not the Father, to death, to mm. settle man's account with death, what we owe to death, and free him from the primal transgression. So he's, that... when he's talking about the penalty. He's not talking about God saying in the garden, Adam and Eve now need to die because they sinned against me, and now I'm going to punish them with this. That's, that's reading into Genesis, because what God actually says is, 
now if they continue in immortality, if they eat from the tree of life, they are going to be like us. They're going to continue on in immortality, but they're going to do that in a corrupted manner because they have sinned. They've actually corrupted themselves. So to, to be under the penalty of death there isn't actually about God giving the penalty. It's about what people end up, end up owing to death because they sin as the natural consequence of sin. And God giving people immortality isn't, isn't about punishment. It's an, it's an exile. And exile is, it can be two things. It can be towards punishment for the unrepentant, but it also gives the possibility, the opportunity for repentance to come back into the presence of God in the proper way. And mm. I think if we start to, to read Genesis and understand that that's really kind of the framework that's going on there, that's the framework that Athanasius is working from, that's the framework that we see in the Eastern Church, um, that a lot of these things that sound to us like penalty of death, that must mean God punished them with death, you start to unravel that pretty quickly because it's not actually about penalty. It's not actually about those kinds of things when you understand it through more, more of, of the, the framework that I think we see in the fathers that we still see in the Orthodox church. Uh, John, and so, yeah, go ahead. Can I just ask real quick, do you yeah. mean like there's no sense of penalty whatsoever or there's no sense of penalty primarily? So it's, it's, um, in, in the sense that, are, are we talking about God giving people capital punishment mm. for committing mm. sin? And Adam and Eve get capital punishment, and then everyone else gets punishment for that. Go read Genesis and tell me where it says that that's what's going on. Right. Go it read says... Genesis and tell me where it says that what God did was actually sacrificing an animal. When sacrifices involve people eat, partaking of the meal, that, that you, you offer things on the altar, and then like that that's when we're talking about sacrifices mm. versus offering sacrifices are something people partake of in, in, in generally speaking. And so to have the talk about the death uh, of the animal and then, and bringing that into a sacrifice, no one talks about that in the church fathers uh, until later. That's but, not an interpretation in Judaism and it's not an interpretation in the fathers until much later. So let me ask this real quick then, and then we can move or then other people can jump in if you want to. So whenever Genesis says the day God tells Adam, the day you eat of this, mm -hmm. you shall surely die. Yeah. Is that not the wage for disobeying God that they would receive is death? It's, yes. But when you're, are you talking about God saying, now I'm going to judge you and punish you with death? Or are you got, talking about God saying, when you choose to sin, you are now in a state in which we cannot be together and have you be safely in my presence the way that you're supposed to be. You cannot grow into what I made you for. Uh, and so you look at the, the end goal of humanity. If we're, if we're supposed to, to be involved in, in, uh, in theosis and becoming more and more like God because we're united to Christ, because we're part of the body of Christ, how do you do that if you're in a sinful state? Right. You can't. So what happens is, is if we're separated from God, we're now separated from the source of life, right? Mm -hmm. From the tree of life to be separated from the tree of life means you're not going to, to you're going to die. Right. Um, so it's more so like a result instead it's, of a it's penalty. The it's, it's the result of, of what they did. And we, and I, I think the entire story we see of scripture is, is God bringing a humanity back into that place and then beyond Eden, um, because if you read the, the church fathers, they're very clear that, that Adam and Eve weren't made perfect. They were made innocent and they were mm -hmm. made like children. They were made to mature and grow into what they were meant to become. Mm -hmm. And that was what kind of got interrupted. 
and when we when we bring in this idea of penalty directly into this, uh, and especially into Athanasius here, because that word doesn't actually mean that at all, um, then I, I don't know. I feel like we're we're reading into it, and and so I just wanted to comment on that because sure. that was part of what Will was was talking about. Right, right. Is, which is I was going to say is can I can I can can I say actually because what you just said kind of like clicked with me in a way that I guess it didn't before. Speaking of children and the way that Adam and Eve were childlike in their innocence, they were inexperienced and then they were deceived and so forth. Um, if I warrant, let's say, uh, to, to bring this back down to the ground level, uh, to simplify a bit, if I warn my child, if you touch the stove while it's hot, it, it's going to burn your hand, right? If you touch the stove while it's hot, your hand will be burned. Your hand That's will surely burn. Like it's a warning, <laughs> right? It's a warning, right? Um, and so the consequence is not if you touch the stove, I will burn your hand. Is that right. what you're saying? Is that God yeah. saying if you yeah. sin, death is the result? Not saying if you sin, I will kill you. Right, right. Because and, scripture and, says that yeah. God is life, and sin, and death, and Satan are always lumped into one. So okay, that, okay. So I, I actually hadn't made that connection before. Uh, yep. In that way, well, so that, and, that I and think that was a really I helpful. Actually, and if we bring in wisdom of Solomon here, which I know is is apocryphal, but you know, to give you an idea <laughs> of how Second Temple Judaism, like how people were thinking about these things, seek not death in the error of your life, and pull not upon yourselves destruction with the works of your hands, for God made not death, neither hath He pleasure in the destruction of the living. To say hmm. that that this that death becomes this punishment of God saying. I don't know. I, I just, the more that I read this and the more that I read the fathers and the more that I, uh, I, I just get immersed in this stuff, I don't see that in Genesis anymore. And I think it really changes the trajectory of a lot of these things. If we, if we look at that and, and we kind of, I don't know. Uh, so I, I saw, um, Dr. Shepard, well, you guys are wrong. I, I saw <laughs> Dr. Shepard, when, when I mentioned, uh, sacrifice and, and meals and all of that. So I don't know if he wants to call in or that or. On, yeah. I want to get yeah, thoughts yeah. on this real quick. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, uh, I guess a couple of things there. Uh, one is that, um, you know, the first chapters of Leviticus describe five sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Only one of those was, was participated in by the people. Uh, it was the, the well-being offering or the peace offering often called. And so if, it depends on, on what model you apply, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's no reason to believe that the sacrifice that at, that Abel and Cain brought was to be a, a communal dining sacrifice. Uh, in fact, I make a pretty strong case um, in, in some work that I'm doing that that was indeed meant to be a sacrifice for sin, which is why sin comes up in the discussion afterwards. So, so, so sorry. Um, how does that how is that supposed to involve death when Cain brought vegetable offering? It, it was the wrong offering. Hmm. Okay, so I mean, I, I okay, that, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, wow. one, oh my goodness. Okay, so so if we go to the to, to, to the, the the Septuagint and see how they render that, the way that mm -hmm. they render the two, they render Cain. As what he brought is a thesia, a sacrifice to be placed on a thesia stern on, on an altar, right? That's the, the right, connection right. there, right? And yeah. and they render Abel bringing it a doron, a gift. So they understood the, the the difference between the two. I don't think it was actually what they brought. It was the heart that they had in bringing. Yes, it was a bribe yeah. versus and an, uh, being about the relationship that they truly wanted to have with God. Does that make sense? So it's not yeah, wrong. yeah, I, I agree. Uh, okay. I'm, not, I'm not necessarily trying to argue for a distinction in the actual 
substantially brought, other than the fact that I think that uh, Cain's sacrifice was uh, inferior uh, because it's not it's not the he didn't bring the best of, of oh the, for sure of, of the ground. But yeah. but, but I'm, what I'm trying to argue is that right after um, right after we're told that God was displeased with Cain's sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, his face is downcast and God evidently takes the initiative and comes to him and says, if you do what is right, will mm -hmm. you not be? And then the, the problem there is how do you translate that next word? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, I agree with Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Genesis that the next word ought to be translated as forgiven. Mm -hmm. If you did the right thing, you would have been forgiven. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think that that's that's coming from there. But so, and I, I don't want to get into too much of that. Yeah, we steal the show here. But the other problem that I really see here is, um, I do believe that that the um, the, the pronouncement in Genesis two uh, is in fact a penalty pronouncement. Um, okay. And and keep in mind the idea that how was that penalty enforced? Even if you say that that. Um, that the inevitable result of their sin was to die um, uh, just in and of itself, mm -hmm. um, you still have the problem that God comes along in chapter 3 and says, uh, we must exile them from the garden because if we don't, they might right. take from the tree of life. So even if we, even if you want to say that, that, that God is simply saying you will die a result and not even call it a penalty, Nevertheless, God enforces that result by exiling him from the garden. Sure. Definitely yeah. But it's so, and I think Athanasius is also using the word penalty, even if it's a debt, to debt and penalty are, 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 are actually in the same semantic domain. And so I think Athanasius is talking about a, about a penalty in, the, in okay. those passages. But I mean, I mean, he clearly says to settle their account with death. Not. Is that the way it's stated? That's or? yeah. So in, it's the way that he states it is. Um, um, here then is the second reason why the word dwelt among us, namely that having proved his Godhead by his works, he might offer the sacrifice on behalf of all, surrendering his own temple to death in place to, of all, right? To, to settle death. man's account with death. Okay. And I, free him from the primal transgression. So he's looking at this back and he's saying, we have a problem with death because of, of the sin of Adam and Eve. But I don't see something directly in, in Athanasius or in Genesis that's saying we have a problem with God giving people the death penalty as a result of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, think that, I think that's assumed. Well, also Hebrews okay. 2.14 says death is the power of Satan. It's not something that, so in, in other words, again, sin, death, all these things are considered synonymous and opposite of God because God is life and he gives life. So the only time we really see God bringing, like, obviously when there's judgments like on Egypt, but one of the biggest times where you see him bring this, which is the second death, and that one is uh, definitely punitive, which is exactly why uh, I know Brian in your notes will probably talk about it later, but it says the wrath that is to come because that is, again, in my mind, so either it's satisfied or it's not, but I did see that uh, ladies and gentlemen uh, commented exactly. I, I kept trying to say it. So ladies and gentlemen, oh, thank yeah. you at least put, for putting it in the comment section. Um, that The whole idea of penalty, uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages, the cost of sin, 
right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Josh was getting at there. And that's one of the things I was uh, I had mentioned. But I appreciate you, uh, Sherman, for being very astute in that area. <laughs> you, you cut me off. He was just like, I got this right in front of me. Like, that was amazing. <laughs> well, anyway, well done. Um, did you want to say something about Hillary now? Is that where you're going next? Or do we have anything else we want to talk about with this particular point? Um, I mean, I definitely have some things to say on Hillary um, because one of the things I find interesting about, sorry, if anyone interject before I talk about Hillary, this will be a lot shorter, I think. Um, I actually wanted to ask if the, the because if you're talking about the, uh, the let's say the account to be settled with death and mm-hmm. death being something that's personified uh, yeah. in some sense, is death synonymous with Satan or is this like a, like something else that I'm missing here. Cause it sounds like what you described as the ransom theory in the other episode, right? Will? Yeah. Kinda, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a little bit of that. That's why it's like, there's a little bit of truth to a lot of these things. Um, it's just really comes down to definitional scope and the way you interpret them. But like with death, the, the bottom line is like, since the wages in the cost of it is death. I mean, I, I look at sin as like an external force that was brought in by Satan, essentially. Uh, I believe it is opposite of God, and I, I, I don't believe that sin or evil is the absence of good. I just think it is actually the opposite of good. So, um, yeah, there are certain people, I mean, it really depends on how you want to do that. I believe it's a sin being a an external force that has corrupted creation and brings forth death. If that, okay, if so that's death a good is, way to put it. Death is more like a henchman of Satan, if, if, I'm, if I'm following. Like, it's, like a, it's a power of Satan, according to Hebrews 2.14. Right. Yeah. So, so if, but, but it's, it's if a delegated is... power. What was that, Doctor okay. Shepard? It's a delegated power. So you think God gave him the power of death? I, I think hmm. Satan, his his power of death over us is that we sinned, and he's the accuser. Hmm. And so God has, in some way. In various places, he delegates that authority to Satan. Uh, not that Satan always carries it out, and not that he's the only one who carries it out. Hmm. Um, so, so, I, so, so the fear of death in Hebrews ten is one that is taken away by Jesus becoming a sacrifice for sin and taking away the, the Satan's right to accuse the believer. So, there's there's another way to look at that. Um, and I, I just want to draw attention to this as a contrast. Um, in in every Orthodox church around the world on Pascha at, at Easter, they read the Pascha homily of John Chrysostom. And the way that he talks about this is, is different from that. He talks about it more very much in Christus Victor terms. Um, he says, um, let no one weep forth for his iniquities, for pardon has shown forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it, and this is, I, I think, what Athanasius is saying, that Jesus went to settle the account with death by offering himself to death, but then death couldn't handle him, right? So, and we, we see Chrysostom talking about that here. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He, was held, he that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. By descending into Hades, he made Hades captive. He embittered it when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry, Hades was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was slain. It was embittered for it was overthrown. It was embittered for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. 
It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are mm -hmm. overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ being risen from the dead has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. Oh man. Like I can't I can't sit down when I read that. <laughs> um, and, um, and so like for me, like if, if what Christ did in dealing with the power of death is taking away the wages of sin, then what does sin have hold on on us anymore? Right. We don't have to fear death because he took away death. And not only that, because there is more that needs to be dealt with. It's not just that. Right. Um, we, we need to be cleansed of of our sins. That's part of it. We need to be healed from the corruption that we have within us. And, and part of the challenge that I have when I look at something like, like penal substitutionary atonement is this idea of justification kind of by de declaring, now you have imputed righteousness, right? I don't think imputed righteousness is enough because what we need in order to be healed goes beyond just imputed righteousness. It's actually talking about regeneration and, and healing us. And, 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 uh, and these are the things that, that when you look at Athanasius, especially, he talks about the incarnation. Like there's very much these connections of, of the fact that, that God himself in, in the person of the son united his divine nature with human nature. There's something there that changes in the incarnation. There's something there that changes in the fact that God does that and reconciles himself to humanity in that way and then opens a way to the reconciling even further of, of individual people who come to him in faith. And um, and so for me, there's so much more about healing and this 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 depth of things from the corruption of sin, from the taint of sin. Um, I, the, the legal thing feels to me like it's actually maybe even the least necessary part because it's it's not ontological right um and i i could be wrong about that but that, that's what do you mean it's not mind. ontological so ontological is talking about being right right if your right. being is corrupted what good does it does it give you to have a policeman say you don't have to pay your traffic fines okay i thought you were talking does about that make sense oh. gotcha they're, they're two completely different categories okay. so oh, I, I don't understand how a legal solution could actually fix an ontological one where our being has become corrupted because we have uh, become uh, through sin um, mortal and therefore um, being inherently do you know we can be corrupted right our, our bodies are corrupted and 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 we die right mm -hmm. that's that's like the the epitome of corruption uh, and yet you know, God provides a way back from that. And, and that's part of the, the, the framework that I, I think is different for me now is that I used to go in and see Genesis and say, okay, God exiled them from the garden. Exile is basically, it's a punishment. Exile leads to death. Death, eventually, if you're still rebellious, leads to eternal death. So all of this is, is just collapsed into this thing of punishment and death and all of that. Now, the way I'm looking at it is more God exiles humanity from the garden, not to kick them out, but to bring them back in in the proper way. Bingo. And he create, He prepares that way through Jesus. And if we look at the whole story of scripture, that's the arc we see. And if we understand that, then even death, even Hades is part of exile, not necessarily punishment, but part of God bringing people to the place where they, they can then be saved by the Savior. Right. Uh, so there's this whole kind of redemptive framework over the whole thing. And if you get into Athanasius's incarnation deep enough, one of the things you start to see is, is you ask the question, not 
you know, Cordeus Homo, not that, um, where Anselm was basically saying like, oh, why did God become man? Um, well, it was because sin had to be dealt with. No, Athanasius takes it even back further. And what he asks is, why did he become become human and become man in the first place? Why did he unite divine and human nature? He did that in order to redeem us. And you can even take it back to the place where you ask the question about why did God create things in the first place? And I think mm -hmm. the answer is to incarnate himself in creation through Christ and then in us as part of the body of Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I mean, that's the thing is like when you, the, at the first, at the fall of man, right, you see uh, mankind separated. I think that's also part of the death mm -hmm. there, right? We got it yeah. like separation, exile. And then that exile of the Garden of Eden, it is reflective of the same exile Israel goes through when they wander the desert for 40 years because of their sin. They now mm -hmm. are exiled, right? But right. God is still with them, but he's bringing them unto himself continually. So the whole idea is that we have to be, when it comes to reconcil reconciliation, PSA seems to kind of want to uh, reconcile God to man, when really the entire story is to be trying to reconcile man to God. Um, so I think mm -hmm. we, we might have a little backwards there. But real quick, do we mind if I to discuss St. Hillary? Then we can go wherever we want. I definitely want to discuss the Levitical system. And since mm -hmm. Dr. Shepard has written a commentary <laughs> on that, I'm sure yeah. that's going to be a, just a very fun conversation. But the, I would like the to The one just... really quick thing I would say is if we're, if we're going to be talking about the relationship of humanity in the way that, and God in the way that you just described it, a really great illustration of that is the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son mm -hmm. is the one that left, took his inheritance, right? And I, I think we can read that on multiple levels. I think we can read it on an like an Adam and Eve kind of level, taking the inheritance yeah. and running away with it. I think we can read it on a Jews and Gentiles level because the older brother is the one that stayed in the house and he's judgmental and doesn't like the fact the younger brother that was with the pigs gets to come back. And I think we can view that on an individual level with people who, who are in sin and need to come back into the household of God. And, and all of that, is about the fact that humanity is turned away from God and needs to come back. And you have the father standing there going, you know, I, I hope they come home. I want them to come home. I'm, 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 you know, and obviously we don't want to anthropomorphize God too much, right? I pray for them to come home every day. Like, you know, but, but there's so much in that parable that I think the, describes the relationship that you're talking about, where you have God creating humanity to be his children, which is part of what the connotation of being made in the image of God. Uh, and then bringing humanity back to that through Christ, the perfect image of God. Uh, so I, I just, I couldn't leave, leave that alone. I had to say See, that too. I, I hear what you're saying, Sherman. Like yeah. I, I really do. And then I'll turn this over to Will. So let me get the last word in on this. And then if we want to revisit this, <laughs> yeah. since I'm the host, I get that privilege, right? No, they, and <laughs> yes, David's been awful quiet. But uh, but if, uh, if David don't have anything after what I get ready to say, then Will, I'll turn it back over to you. Um, but I, I, so I hear what you're saying, you know, and I do, it's kind of like that conversation Sherman that we had about God being father or judge, right? Yeah. It, it, what is he primarily? And I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think it's both. And the reason I say that is because I've, I've got multiple verses here, but I'll just read a couple. Isaiah 1, 23 through 24, your officials are rebels. They associate with thieves. All of them love bribery and look for payoffs. They do not take up the cause of the orphan and, or defend the rights of the widow. Therefore, the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, the powerful one of Israel, says this, Ah, I will seek vengeance against my adversaries. I will take revenge against mm -hmm. my enemies. And just one more, Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, probe into people's minds. I examine people's hearts. I deal with each person according to how he has behaved. I give them what they deserve based on what they have done. And so instead of separating them and maybe putting one primarily above the 
other. God is infinite, right? Mm. And so I think that setting those attributes maybe, and you guys can disagree or agree with me. Is, sorry, is, is, is judge an attribute of God? What's that? Is, uh, is no, judge an justice attribute is? of God? Justice. No, but justice is. I, I would in, say justice is an exercise of his goodness in ordering creation and bringing it back no. into order. And if, the, if that needs, needs to involve retributive justice in order to deal with elements that are beyond redemption, okay. But like, but there's still that part. Is what we're yeah saying. yeah I'm not I'm not saying there's there's, there's no retributive part. justice with God I, I do think there is we clearly see that in Scripture but right. I, I think what we see the the primary framework for judgment in Scripture is when you're talking about God as Creator is God ordering creation properly that's judgment in in, in a Hebrew mindset right and God bringing mm. things back into order which means dealing with disorder and so you have this this I think uh, these frameworks where that sense of, of, of order and bringing things back into order is what makes God just. And, and what makes God righteous is his doing the same things. The, the Dikiosini is, is connected in with the same kind of thinking, right? Uh, and the things that he does that are more retributive justice are dealing with elements of creation of, of nations and of people that and, and angels uh, that have gotten to the point where they are standing in the way of what God is doing to bring things back, of reordering things, of establishing justice. And th those are the, are the places where I think we see th that punishment is meted out because there, there is no, no other way forward in those situations. And God is the one who knows that as the creator of all things. Right. But, and, and, and I think you just said it perfectly. There is no reconciliation at that part. Right. Like for those people, for those angels, for those people that try to stand in God's way, because let's all face it, God will have the last, you know, God will have the upper hand. Right. No one thwarts God's will. But at the same time, there is no reconciliation in that. It's just re retributive. Right. Like there is a reason for this. And and it's, you know, it's because of what they've done. It's just like I said in Jeremiah, <laughs> right. God pays back the people the, for what they do. And mm -hmm. so if you're going to stand on, the opposite side of God, right? Like, what did Jesus say? If you're not with me, you're against me, right? Sure. For those who are against Jesus, then retribution is the way, it is what's going to happen. So that's just my thoughts on it. David, you're awful quiet, brother. You got any? I, I mean, you said it really good. I, I think there's a, a both and to this. Um, um, and I, I was just thinking, I mean, we're, we're trying to jump on the early church fathers. I mean, what about Cyril? I mean, he play, he explains it really well he was a contemporary of athanasius uh then we've got uh jerome who also uh each of these guys uh um meet the standard definition in their talks uh about penal substitutionary atonement so i think to say that that type of legal language and stuff like that is is not within the early church fathers is is it, not good I, it is there uh the 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 problem with the reformed i think they overstate their case mm -hmm. right but I, I do think it's there. I think the language is there. Um, and, and I think it's I think it's kind of I think it's too much to say that uh, the uh, the early church fathers had a formula for this yet. And I think sure. the reason we see Christus Victor, the reason we see these later laterly or these later developed uh, theories of atonement is because they they reflected on these and they took away right. you know different aspects. But to say that they themselves had a fully formed uh, um, notion of this, I, I think is just it, you're 
you're overdoing your case in that so, way versus do, overdoing yeah. your case in that way. And I, I can tell you, you can't act like the Orthodox Church is unified on ransom theory when I just – I can pull up a, an article sure. on a, on a, a Orthodox uh, – Eastern Orthodox defending PSA. So, I mean, yeah. you know, yes. it's, it's, yeah. it's definitely so, there. The, so my whole point, Josh, though yeah. – but I, I agree. I, I think you're making a good case – but I don't mm -hmm. think that's the whole case. And I do think there is something more to sin than just uh, uh, what we are, are are presenting it as. I think it does do a lot more and it goes a lot further. It corrupts to a point yeah, to where, absolutely. you know, it's just it, – it, I mean it ruins the, the whole form, the whole image of God. I think it can get to that point. And I think that's where the urgency is. And I think there's a lot of legal language in the New Testament, obviously. Um that that could justify a theory of PSA, no, but so that's just so, me overall. <laughs> that's kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah, go ahead. Well, real quick, when it comes to some of these things, where it's like when someone just says like, "Oh yeah, these guys like you know Gregory and Nisa, these guys, these guys legal language," I uh, and that's enough for that. Some of these things we see is enough for PSA. Uh, I think that's actually also overstating the case quite a bit, David. If I could just push back on you quite a bit, uh, how so? Because you first need to prove that all those are saying that God. To be the definition of PSA, penal substitutionary atonement, or VPSA, vicarious penal substitutionary atonement, you need to have the elements of God satisfying his wrath by pouring his wrath out on Jesus in our place as a substitute, not on our behalf, not as a representative. It, and though that language is a lot harder to find, and, mm -hmm. and I would argue is actually not there in the first yeah. few hundred years and anything I've read. And I've read plenty of other scholars who have said the yeah. same. There's a reason why. And, and I would push back. I would push back on that, Will, because mm -hmm. I have done the same. I mean, I'm on my fourth as a, as of this moment. I'm on my fourth fourth course on early church history, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the patristics. And I'm telling you, I, from what I read, yes, it is there. Uh, so, so, I mean, I guess we'll just have to, so agree I'll, to disagree I'll, on that. I'll throw in a different I do. Angle. I would say that, that both to, to agree with both of you guys, too, though, is that I think both sides overstate their case. Yeah. So one of the things that I think maybe helps as, as a path through that um, is that because because I, I see this in, in, in orthodoxy, there are definitely people that say there's nothing, you know, no belief in PSA at all in the fathers. Right. There's nothing that talks even remotely like it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I see other people that's, that actually take it and say, yeah, we think there's something to this, yes. right? So there is some kind of, of spectrum there. But the, but the consistent thing that you see uh, in, in the Orthodox Church is that um, when you go to their services and, and worship, when you look at how they deal with what happened at the cross, when you look at how, how they emphasize things, when they're talking about how Jesus saves us, the the vast majority of, of everything that's talked about is talking about Jesus conquering death mm. and Jesus conquering Hades. I mean, it's it's like it's it's not even a comparison in terms of the emphasis. And so to look at something and say that the, the, the church fathers, there's a church father that says this and there's a church father that says this. Part of the way to look at that and to try to kind of put those in context over time when we're talking about what did the church believe for the first however many thousands of years, right, is and hundreds of thousands, depending on where, where you want to look at it, is what did they do in their services? And, and the, 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 the divine liturgy that John Chrysostom wrote and that you know, St. Basil wrote, like, what did they do? What, how did they, they approach this? And what you consistently see in the prayers and the services of, of, of the Orthodox Church is, is very much 
not a, uh, something where they're saying, this is how Jesus saved us. He took this penalty. He was you know, the wrath of God was poured out upon. That's not there. What you do see of them talking about about the judgment of of, of sin and and Jesus on the cross, there are elements, but but the, it's it's not the emphasis. It's not the core. It's not something where you could say that this is what they believe the gospel is the way that a lot of Christians do today with PSA. Um, and so I think that lex orandi lex credendi, what we pray right, in, uh, informs and tells us about the theology that we have, um, is a very good way to look at the fathers and try to sort out, rather than trying to proof text things from here, little bits and pieces from here and there, to pull something together that sounds to us like what we understand those words to mean. Well, and I'd just add, since I haven't said anything, and this has been really fun to listen to, um, just push back on David, too, <laughs> since we're all piling on now. Um, I think it was a little bit, it, it felt a little bit to me just like a, like a begging the question, you're saying, I see the legal language and that's why I think it's legal language, and but that is kind of the point of contention. So I think what Will is trying to explain with Athanasius is that wasn't actually legal language that he was using. He was, when we read it in English, without the context of the greater point he was making, it feels like legal language. And the, like Joshua was saying, as you get into it, you see that's not at all what they're trying to say. So that's why I think it's just a little bit begging the question. We're assuming the conclusion in the in the claim. Yeah, well, I'm, not, I'm really not begging the question there. Just one, one, when I said, yeah, I, I do want to say I'm After not begging you. the question yeah. there. Uh, uh, I, you know, this is kind of what I've gathered during my entire research. Uh, the reason I just brought up lingual language throughout all the New Testament, mm -hmm. I mean, we've got words like apologia, for example, is a legal term. So, I mean, the, you know, just there's a lot to it. And, you know, I, of course, I'm not going to be able to sit here and pull up a whole apologetic for atonement theory and legal language. Uh, I know Tom Wright has done a lot of work on this stuff, uh, so I could refer you to that, you know, so, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So I, I just want to state that for the record that, you know, it's not just from, you know, a willy-nilly statement for me saying so, that. It goes a lot deeper than that. Well, so, so real quick, Kit, actually, and I wish quick. we could, we wish we, we could have a, a deeper conversation. Actually, on that this would be, a, this is, this is a good time for me actually to mention this part of St. Hillary. Sherman, can you, can you, can you bookmark this for two seconds? Uh, I know you're on a roll and I love it. Um, I actually never thought, <laughs> we'll talk about this. <laughs> I never thought that someone could out talk me, uh, on, on these sorts of things. And then uh -oh. I, I met Joshua Sherman <laughs> and then I was like, man, this guy can just, I'll just sit back. He's doing a great job. Um, that meant that as a compliment, by the way, yeah, I we're like entertained. People, I like it when people talk a consistent, cohesive thought. That's actually well thought through, not a pithy statement. Um, so one of the things, like as we were as Brian was saying, um, as far as like the legal language and begging the question, that sort of thing, uh, and this is true with anyone when you have a theological view and you're trying to prove your theological view all the dang time. It happens. It's very easy to happen. But the thing is, is, if you hold to certain views and you assume your certain views, you can still assume that. Like like we saw that Jeremiah Short did when he was reading Athanasius, when really Athanasius was saying, "Hey, he felt this way." Uh, while on the cross, but really God redeemed him, like in Psalm 69. Like when Athanasius is trying to make that point, he says, nope, that, it said wrath, therefore it must equal PSA. Um, but what we mm. see that same thing with St. Hillary um, is right here where he says, because he's talking about the eternal son, the immutability of God, he's talking about the incarnation here in his homilies of the Psalms that, that Jeremiah Short had quoted in our last, uh, your last episode with, about this. And mm -hmm. he says it was intended to fulfill 
a penal function. And he goes, see, and he literally was just like, see, that enough said, penal function. He read through this, but he was just like, that's that, see right there, penal substitutionary atonement, penal function, boom, done. Fulfill a penal function without, however, inflicting pain of penalty upon the sufferer. Not that the suffering in question was not of a kind to cause pain, but because the divine nature feels no pain. God suffered then by voluntarily submitting to suffering. But although he uh, underwent the sufferings and all the fullness of their force, which necessarily causes pain to the sufferers, yet he never so abandoned the powers of his nature to, as to feel pain. So hmm. the when you're reading this, we see fulfill a penal function, you go, boom. But whose who's, who's penal function, mm -hmm. whose penalty? It's that that's... If you are assume, you have to beg the question. Assume it must be God's penal his penal function that God is applying on Jesus, not mankind or someone else who is pouring it out. Thank okay, God. because what? Why? Why does he have to do this? Why does there have to be penal function? Because he has to be able to feel pain. Why? Because he has to be like us in every respect. And this whole point in this homily and of salt of the Psalms of Psalm 53 is he's discussing how God can be completely unchanging yet incarnate in a man. And how can these things be unchanging? Mm. So, um, no, uh, by the way, I see Sarah field. No, he's saying that, uh, Jesus did, uh, that the, the divine nature didn't feel any pain, but like Jesus was God and man. Right. Yeah. Right. So he's kind of wrestling that concept. So he's talking about Christ being able to suffer and die in the flesh because he's a fully incarnate, human for the incarnation penal does not automatically mean penal substitutionary atonement that's again begging the question just because the same word does not mean it's using the same definition psa re teaches that the father punished jesus in our place hillary is saying that jesus had to be able to be mortal in order to die he had to be like us in every way to be able to feel pain is a penalty of being human right it's just part uh, by penalty here i mean it in the same way athanasius did it is a cost it is a way of us being human right i and this is also something we see God say, hey, I will multiply your pain in childbirth. To feel pain is to be human. This is referring to Christ's humanity, not necessarily God punishing him. Hillary states, Christ offered up himself as a victim to God, but not a victim of God. Okay? That's, that's, that's Which, a so, portion, to, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that um, Hillary defines the penalty as that which, which was appointed by the law. And Which is death. like every other church father, the law came from God. So it's God's penalty. No, no, that the, the wages, the, the law be due to the knowledge of the law, according to Romans seven, it brings death. The, de the, the law is good and exposes sin and our sin is what causes death. So it's, I yeah, I don't think that's Hillary's point though. He, he's the penalty is that which, which disobedience to the law brings about. So it's 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 God's penalty imposed on the human race. I mean, I think it's more broad. Just to, I, I think I think it's more broad than what either of us are saying. Hold on. So, so real quick, so Doctor Shepard, what you're saying is because the law comes from God, the penalty attached to that law also comes from God. Right, um, Hillary. So by by penalty, do we mean consequence? Or do we mean God intervening to bring about a punishment? Well, the, well, the um, statement that's probably the difference between yeah, those being yeah. Said. The mm. statement from Hillary is that um, he says he, he blotted out through death the sentence of death, that by a new creation of our race in himself, he might sweep away the penalty appointed by the former law. 
he let them nail him to the cross that he might nail to the cross the curse of the cross and abolish all the curses to which the world is condemned. That penalty comes from the law. The curses by which the world is condemned are curses that God himself pronounced. Hmm. So that's why it's, it's, I don't think you can resort to either Hillary's or Athanasius's use of the Psalms and poetic language and then transfer that into what Hillary and, and Athanasius are doing with that language. Um, even though they are, are quoting passages that may be poetic, uh, like Psalm 88 and Psalm 69, it doesn't mean that Athanasius's or Hillary's use of those passages is being restricted by the poetic. I think this is very, very, very real, very substantial, very literal for them. Uh, well, St. Hilary also said that the East and the West of the church, because people were bickering constantly back and forth about uh, semantical, uh, semantic words, he actually also was the one who stated that we also, we also have to mean the same thing, but use different words, because um, he was trying to unite people before a giant schism took place, which did. But again, um, where scripture seems to teach that it is the law that, because uh, where there is no law, there, no sin is counted. Okay, so by the way, I should, this is probably a good time to say I don't uh, subscribe to Augustine's original view of original sin either. So, um, so the uh, whole idea, what was that? I said noted. <laughs> yeah, probably probably a good time to note uh, that. Um, so. I'm waiting for David to come out with heretic because <laughs> he likes to he likes to throw that out in, in most. No, I, a, I actually a, agree, a, agree congenial with. Well, I don't hold to uh, Augustinians. Uh, you know the Augustinian idea either uh i do think there is something to uh his idea the loss of form but i think that also plays out in other other uh areas as well so other people that have commented on that but so will i want to let you finish and then i've got a yeah. question for you that deals with this language that, that that we're describing but go ahead and go ahead right well i mean that's my main point there was like it, it doesn't say because yeah romans 7 i was once alive without the law but when the commandment came uh, sin revived and I died and the commandment which was to bring life I found to bring t bring death and it's because that God is life and when you fall into sin that brings death I don't think that's uh, all like a punishing thing that's just you left God you left yeah. life yeah. therefore death consumes you and so to say and the, the, it is the God's perfect good law his good law that exposes that sin so I don't think we can say that it's, I don't think it's as crystal clear. I think it has to be, again, kind of one of those things that's assumed that, well, this must be uh, punitive on God's part. Now, again, I, I would agree that the second death is 1000% punitive because that's God pouring out his, uh, his wrath upon everyone, which is why he says that his wrath is stored up against all unrighteousness. And then we see it poured out at the end. Uh, I don't, see how it's poured out on Jesus, okay. especially if I can talk about wrath for just a second. Yeah, um, great. Yeah. One of the, one of the contexts that I think really helps with this. Uh, and this, this is something that uh, I don't, if you, if you're familiar with Spencer Owen from some of the discussions I've had with him, uh, he brought to my attention is, is that when we talk about wrath or the cup of wrath in the prophets, uh, generally what this is, is a sp very specific image of the people of God being handed over or sold to slavery to, or given up into the hands of foreign nations or pagan powers uh, that surrounded Israel. 
Uh, and so uh, for those nations, those same things could happen to them, right? So Edom drinks the cup by being wiped off the face of the earth. Assyria drinks the cup by, by being destroyed by Babylon, right? So this is is a way of talking about the wrath of God that's very, very biblical and very, very, very prophetic. You could say that in the context of, of, of the crucifixion, what we see is that Jesus drinks the cup by standing in as a representative of Israel who goes into exile on their behalf, being handed over to the powers of Rome, the corrupt leaders of Israel and the darker powers uh, of, you know, this, the powers of darkness uh, and they kill him. And it's because of this judgment through the suffering of the righteous that these powers are themselves condemned and overthrown. Uh, so. I do think we can we can look at this in some sense as as God handing you know the Father handing the Son over, uh, and and there being wrath involved there. But the wrath that's being involved there is the handing over to the 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 foreign powers to the powers of darkness. It's them that are then inflicting the 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 wrath, the anger, the punishment, and all of those things. It's not the Father doing that. Right, um, and the father doing that uh, is is then done to to chasten and bring the, then bring the people back, albeit it's a remnant, right? Um, but then we see the same thing with Christ. So the, we could say, to some extent, in some way, if we want to want to talk about God, uh, Jesus taking on the wrath of God, that that would be the way in which he does it. Um, but that's a very different way from the way that we we see it talked about especially in the reformers and especially in in reformed teachers nowadays when they look at it and they say that god killed jesus that god damned jesus and god sent jesus to hell to burn so that for three days so that he could he could balance the scales for the dead of our sin and and i have numerous quotes piper macarthur sproul hodge like big names, in addition to Calvin, in addition to some things Luther said that are, are somewhat related, but are, are not quite the same, um, where they talk about this specifically. This is how they view the understanding that the wrath of God was poured out upon the sun. And that is the layer that I go to when I look at it and I say, if that's what you mean, then I don't know how to look at that and see anything but something terrible. Because A, it, it, to me, I don't understand how to see that as something that doesn't sunder the Trinity in some way, if you're talking about that kind of wrath being poured out from the Father to the Son. I don't understand how, and it, it just, it gets me really worked up <laughs> uh, when I when I see those kinds of things. Um, and, and you see some, and it, there are videos of Sproul, and this is this is out there from Ligonier. Like, they're, they're proud of him saying this. The, 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 the Father said to Jesus, God damn you in order that we might be saved. And I just want to say, no, that is not what happened at the cross. That is not what it means by any stretch of the imagination when we talk about the wrath of God. Even if we're, we're going to say that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, it's not what it means. And I don't, like, it's just, it's not, that's not it. Uh, and, and part of the reason that I brought up the way that Chris Austin talked about this is to draw this contrast because you literally have a contrast between the church historically looking at this and saying the, 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 the primary way that we see Jesus, you know, saving us is him going into Hades and conquering death. Right. And we also have him dealing with sin. How does he deal with sin? He deals with sin as the offering and the offered and the priest. Right. And there's cleansing that he's doing in, in the heavenly in the heavenly tabernacle in, in Hebrews that talks about this, right? So there's cleansing involved. There's 
Um, there's forgiveness involved. There's all of these things involved to deal with sin. There's also the healing of, of, of humanity by being united with Christ and what that means to be infused by the union with Christ. Um, that's, that's the contrast we have between that and the kind of theology that, that has led people, both in the reformers at the founding and to the present day, to say things like, God damn Jesus, he sent him to hell to burn so that we could be paid for. I cannot look at that contrast and think, yes, God damn Jesus is the one I want. Uh, so I, I don't want to draw a straw man, but I think when I'm quoting the kinds of people that I, that I can quote when I say that, I'm not making a straw man. I'm quoting people that the people every day now read and listen to and think of as pillars of the faith, as men of God, as, as like the contemporary people holding up Christianity against wokeism. This is the kind of people that, I, that I'm talking about that say these things. And they say it's heresy to deny to say yes, otherwise. Yeah. Yes, they I've do. been told. I've been called a, a heretic by Dr. James White, and uh, just for saying I don't believe God poured His wrath out on His Son. Now, quickly, sorry, Brian. I know you had something real. Yeah, quick you I wanted, wanted to mention. just mention something what Josh was saying that was making me think. Especially we've been talking about Genesis a bit. So, verse fifteen in chapter three. If we take this as maybe one of the first kind of hints at the future atonement, mm -hmm. who bruises Christ's heel? It isn't God. It's mm -hmm. Satan. Mm. The Satan, the serpent, is bruising Christ's heel, which if you can't read PSA in that verse at all. And then I think also when we look at Ephesians 4, 31, 32, when we talk about we are to forgive as God forgives us in Christ, mm -hmm. I don't think that's a model for PSA at all. We're not to bring wrath upon ourselves so that we can somehow figure out a way to forgive others. So we got to take the punishment of the neighbor who sinned against me, and now I have to punish myself for their sin against me. That doesn't make any sense. That's not, we're to forgive as God forgives in Christ, which seems to be <laughs> that we're forgiving without strings attached. We're forgiving through repentance. We're forgiving and recovering and forgetting, not having to enact wrath in order to bring about forgiveness. In fact, there's even a parable about it, right? The the one, the guy who, yeah, the servant that's unforgiving, the, yeah, yeah, the unforgiving servant. It's like the master freely forgave you, and now you can't freely forgive somebody else. But PSA means that God has to punish someone, even if they're innocent, in order. And I'm not trying to straw man. It's just you have to punish somebody, even if it's yourself. It's still you're punishing someone in order to fulfill your other. I don't understand how you can fulfill your wrath and your justice by punishing innocence. I just. So this so, actually comes wanna, back. To, oh, go ahead, Tyler. Go yeah, ahead. I think it's a a good time to bring this up. Um, there, there's a lot of things that I wanted to address, but I forgot them to be perfectly honest <laughs> and and forget exactly how you guys worded them. So I don't want to I don't want to straw man either. But l let me just ask the panel this question because we're talking about the wrath of God uh, mm -hmm. being poured out on Jesus, and so in First John two two, in First John four ten, in Romans three twenty five, Jesus is referred to, and in mm -hmm. this this word is directly related to Jesus as one hilasmas, as mm -hmm. an instrument for appeasing, as Bdag uh, says, and hilasterion, the mercy seat as the NET renders it, or the means of expiation as Bdag renders it. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about how, you know, there's no verse in the Bible that says that God poured out his wrath on Jesus, which I agree. There is no verse that directly states that, just like there's not a verse in the Bible that directly states the Trinity, unless you want to take First John five seven, but that's another that's another topic. <laughs> but Let's here's not my question. That one. <laughs> yeah, right. But here's my question: yeah. Don't these words hilasmas hilasterion? Do not these imply, if not imply, directly state 
that this is one of the roles that Jesus acted in during his crucifixion? I'm going to say no. Um, and the reason I'm going to say no, um, if we look at, at, at Romans, when it talks about him being the propitiation for our sins, I think the reason that it's rendered propitiation, mostly in English translations, comes through the Latin Vulgate, because you see propitio used there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we're rendering that idea here. Um, but in, in Greek, it's the hilasterion, or, or it's a form of that, right? Um, that word is is related to have mercy. The mercy right? seat. That's why we it's talk directly about related mercy to seat. the mercy seat. When, right. when you have people, and, and if you look at, like, this is one of the things that really kind of changed a lot of my framework for things is when you look at, at, at historic prayers of the church, one of the big ones that you see is the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? Mm -hmm. um, and some people get really uptight with that because it's repeated and they're like, well, that's vain repetition. And other people get really uptight with that because they're like, well, that's tradition. And I look at it and I'm like, okay, where do we see people asking for mercy from God? and from Jesus in scripture? And mm -hmm. what are the contexts of that? Mm -hmm. And the context of that that we do not see uh, are, are so much that that kind of legal aspect of things, right? You, you do have the, the, um, the public and the tax collector saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? Forgive me. So you do have that context for sure. But you also see, and then, so this is the part I didn't see before, you see people that, that are begging Jesus to have mercy, Lord have mercy, right? When they want to be healed, when they want their friend to be healed, when they're, they are, they have someone that they know that is demon possessed and they mm -hmm. need that demon out. They say, you know, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy, have mercy. Right. So I think if we relate Elasterion and we relate the ideas of have mercy to these things, we don't necessarily have to bring in the propitiatory aspect when the language that we see in, um, in, um, in Leviticus, we have the chatatz, the sit offering, right? Um, that's that comes from the PL stem, which means to cleanse, right? It's, it's a very specific form of that. The the, the relationship there, kiper, right? You can talk about different things. You can say it's the cover, but but most most directly, it's actually related to the Cadian term kupuru, and and kiper in Leviticus does not mean to cover; it means to wipe or to cleanse. So we're mm -hmm. talking about expiation. We're talking about cleansing. Uh, we're talking about dealing with sin in that way. And, and that's why I would say, at, le at the very least, that's not where the emphasis is when we talk about Hilasterion. Um, I, I honestly don't know that I even see that it's that it's there, but I could be wrong. Well, and also, like, when you're talking about, um, like, okay, so Halasmos, right? We're, we're, with Halas, it's funny, because you said all that, and I looked at Brian, I was like, he stole my thunder. He's like, it's right <laughs> in our notes. And I was like, ah, I know. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, so when you're talking about like um, a halasmos, halasmos can mean to appease the wrath of, okay, mm -hmm. right? And, and that is used. That's the way renders it, yeah. Um, it, it, it can be, that's, it's used in the Odyssey even to talk about how the Greek gods were satisfied. Sure. Okay. Um, but also in the Septuagint, now if you guys are familiar with uh, like with Hebrew terminology then, uh, kafar is the other word that's used for atonement in Hebrew. Well, kafar is rendered a Septuagint with halasmos. It's hey, Will, this... your camera went out. I don't mean to interrupt or steal oh. your thunder, yep. but your camera went out. Oh, no. All right, I got my IT guy on it. 
Um, <laughs> so Brian, <laughs> phone a friend right next to you. It's funny because <laughs> he actually is an IT guy. All right. Um, so, but the so Halaswas and Kafar. So we see Halaswas use it for Kafar, but Kafar in the Hebrew does not have the idea of satisfying the wrath of God, but more of this idea of reconciliation. So why Jews to this day uh, find something like Pedal Sustitutionary Atonement very weird because that's not really what's found in their sacrificial systems, not really what's found with the mercy seat. That because like this is just sounds like and I'm not trying to be spicy or saucy when I you say are. it. You they, are. They say it sounds pagan, and I can't help but agree the more I've looked at the etymology of the word and where these things come from, where it's like, oh, I think we just mixed something up in there, where we took a Roman definition instead of the Hebrew one, but when they use the Greek word, we've been carrying with it the the Roman view, which is why we see the same word, helasmos, as mercy seat rendered there in Hebrews, multiple times as mercy seat, um, or something along that nature. So we see the idea Mm -hmm. of mercy seat and that side by side so but let me so let me ask you this with with what you just said given that paul is writing to the romans which make up a greek and jewish congregation Mm -hmm. we see all the time throughout scripture where paul uses language not only paul but john Mm -hmm. and even jesus uses language that they are familiar with to show how the true god yahweh conquers over these different types of gods couldn't that be what's going on here as well as everything that you have said I mean, possible versus probable, I would say, are, it would be a thought process I have so, there. So a very sp- specific example of this. Uh, this yeah. is from Simon Gathercole on, on defending substitution. Um, he talks about this, and he tra- he draws uh, the parallels uh, between Romans 5, 6 through 8 and um, what, what he sees in classical uh, Greek uh, literature. Um, and he, the reason he's doing this is tr- he's trying to, to uh, help us to understand what hyperhimon, uh, and I'm sorry, my pronunciation is terrible. Your Hebrew is better. <laughs> um, it's, um, well, so yeah, the, the thing is I have, I have influences from Rasmian and from like Greek <laughs> and from not knowing enough. So all Rasmian. of those come in and it's really fun. Um, yeah. But you know, he's that, that terminology that a lot of people have said, and I remember you, Tyler, you've talked about uh, Wallace talking about this, I believe that, that this means substitutionary. It means instead of. Mm, and, and being uh, pretty specific yeah. about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is what um, this is what Gather Cole has to say about it. And yeah. um, there are a couple things he has to say. One is that actually that terminology doesn't bring in substitution directly itself. Um, so you have to bring in context to understand whether it's truly in the place of or on the half of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he says. Um, here, so uh, one of the main reasons scholars have doubted the presence of substitution in Paul's letters is that the meaning of the preposition "hyper" has quite rightly been said not necessarily to have substitutionary connotations in and of itself. Um, he then goes on to argue that it does in, in the context with Paul for a number of reasons. One of the reasons that he, do, he, he does is the way that it's used in, in a play called Alcestis, um, which is uh, a play by Euripides. And in that play, you have very, very clearly substitution right here's the reason it's very clearly substitution in the play the god apollo announces to the main character that he will allow this main character admetus to live if he can find someone to die in his place this is the one example that gather has that is unquestionably substitution 
when he goes on, he describes a number of other examples where this language is used, where they talk about death and, and he sees substitution there, but it's things like being willing to die for one's countrymen, for one's friend, right? And the idea there is I would be willing to die if perhaps it allows my friend to, to, to survive, right? In battle or whatever. That's not substitution though, right? Substitution is you in the place of someone else so they actually can go free, right? To be willing to be to, to die on behalf of someone else, to give your life for someone else is laudable, but it's not necessarily substitutionary unless they actually do go free. So the, the examples that he gives are a pagan god telling the, the main character that, that you know, this is substitutionary, which I don't really, I don't want to pull my understanding of, of, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, of, of Jesus Christ, you know, the son of God from that kind of, of, of comparison. And then the other examples that he gives are not necessarily substitution because they could be someone doing something on behalf of not necessarily in the place of. So that's where I have, a, I have trouble with that language is that I think a lot of times it's meant to be, it's taken to be much more specific than it actually is. Let me ask you this, Josh. Do you have uh, Wallace's uh, XN? I don't. Do you have uh, Murray Harris's prepositions of, uh, oh, what is it? Prepositions in theology in the Greek New Testament. I don't. I suggest you get those, but let me just read this from uh, Wallace sure. real quick. It is our conviction that who pairs naturally suited to the meaning of substitution and is in fact used in several passages dealing with the nature of Christ's atonement. On behalf of the view, I think that's a pun that he threw in there, but anyway, <laughs> on behalf of the view that who pair has at least a substitutionary sense, to it in passages dealing with the atonement are the following arguments. One, it's in classical Greek. Admittedly, the usage is rare in the classical period, but confer Plato, the Republic, and I'm going to butcher this, Xenophon, yep. Anabasis, uh, and the Septuagint, uh, Deuteronomy 24, 16, Isaiah 43, 3 uh, through 4, Judith 8, 12, etc., and in the papyri. Now, the, here's the, here. I, I think this is the argument that won me over. The uh, papyrus, oh boy, there, there's a bunch. Oxyrhynicus uh, papyrus. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, sure. In, in Robertson's study of the, of the phenomenon, he noted the following. Here we go. But the papyri, particularly the business documents, show that Paul is following current usage when he prefers huper over auntie for the idea of substitution. Certainly, in all these instances, the writing is done on behalf of one, but one cannot stop there. Weiner rightly says, quote, in most cases, one who acts in behalf of another takes his place, end quote. This is absolutely true in the case of his re recurrent idiom, so common in the papyri, where a scribe writes a document in behalf of this and instead of one. In wow, I'm hearing an echo real bad. Uh, That's my bad. Keep going. No, it's all good. Uh, where a scribe writes a document in behalf of and instead of one who does not know letters, the scribe writes for one who is not able to write. So, uh, so all of that is just an argument for the fact that it's possible to render it in terms of substitution and not representation. It's not an argument that establishes a substitution instead of representation. Second Corinthians uh, 5.14 is uh, you, you can't render the word any other way than substitution. Now, granted, they argue that there's multiple ways to use uh, hooper in more than substitutionary sense, but to deny that it's used as a substitutionary sense, you can't do it, especially with uh, Philemon 13. It, 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 you just can't. There's no other way to render that, that preposition. Can I say something real quick? Yeah. So, okay, yeah, sorry, ahead. sorry. Second Corinthians 5.14, you're going to say it's a substitution? Yeah. 
we're, yeah, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Well, all died. And that's exactly what. If, if all died, then that's representation, and... not substitution, because it's, it's it's inclusive place or inclusive place taking, not exclusive place taking. To be a substitute means that the others do not die. Right. Hmm. Hold on. Say that again. So if you truly have a substitute, you have one person that dies so that the other person does not. Why? How can Paul then say, and therefore all died? He's that's saying we question. died with Christ, right? So, I mean, that's one of those ones where I think there's multiple things going on here, right? I, and I think what we, one of the challenges that we have is not just whether we're talking about substitution or representation, but what the relationship between those two things is. Uh, and uh, so you you can have someone that that operates essentially as a substitute and a representative at the same time in some ways. So you think about King David, right? Okay. He is the representative of Israel when he goes and fights Goliath in the battlefield. He's also technically kind of the the substitute because he's the only one fighting and they don't fight. Exactly. But then once he takes down Goliath, they join in the battle, right? right. So th there's this this punctuated thing of he represents them and then he's the substitute for them and then he represents them because they're with him. Like it's it's not all like totally clear cut. And and I do think sometimes we can get an argumentation where where we want it to be one or the other and then there could be nothing um you know it, but um, but that particular verse, I I think it's really hard to make a substitutionary argument when when Paul talks about therefore all died because then then you're bringing everyone else into that equation. You're right. talking you're talking Christians and non Christians, right? At that point, or or what do you mean exactly? For because Christ we would all agree that us. Jesus died for everyone, right? Yes. Okay. So I don't. I guess I'm not understanding your problem with it. Because there's a difference between representation, representation and substitution. So I could die for all people and save all people. Like if an asteroid is coming down uh, and I only have one nuke and I'm riding it and I blow it up <laughs> and I die for to save everybody. Okay, so I bring in sci-fi here, guys. It's a good time. No, I love um, it. It's great. Yeah. And so I died for uh, on behalf of everyone else instead of everyone else dying. But uh, as opposed to me going, well, asteroid, take me instead and save everyone else. That's that's a bit that's that's different. Um, you just wanted also, everyone to yeah, and I, I also wanted to make sure I fact check myself. Yeah, Helisterion, not Helasmos, but Helisterion, Hebrews 9 5, can be rendered either as something that appeases the wrath of God or also as mercy seat. So I just want right. to fact check myself. Yeah, that's the well, way and, and, and if we're going to talk about appeasement, it, it should also be noted that if we're going to talk about um, a pleasing aroma, mm -hmm. right, that doesn't necessarily have to mean moving God from being wrathful to being forgiving. It could be moving God from the wherever he is in his his relationship to people and then being pleased by the fact they're moving towards him. This is something that I that uh, I actually disagree with Michael Morales on El Michael Morales in um, in his um, uh, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord. Um, he, and he talks about this in his commentary on Leviticus, and, and he, he brings in uh, this idea of of wrath appeasement into the story of Noah. And he says, you know, when when God smells that sweet smelling aroma, then then he's no longer angry. And then, you know, it, it's good. And and I go I've gone back and forth in, in those in those chapters in Genesis. And I'm just like, I don't see it there. I don't see that Noah was under wrath. Noah was the one that God saved through the flood. And then you have the waters coming down. Right. Wrath is not mentioned as a term. You have the waters coming down in the flood. And then God remembers Noah before any kind of sacrifice could possibly be made because they're still in the ark. Like, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. um, so he remembers Noah 
And then uh, the floods recede. And then Noah comes out from the ark and he makes a sacrifice. The pleasing aroma rises. And, and then what you see, I think, there is not wrath appeasement. I think what it is is that God is, is happy that, that Noah has come out of the ark and, and proceeded to try to uh, initiate proper relationship with God in the aftermath of the flood. And that mm -hmm. initiation towards relationship pleases God, and and He then enters into covenant with Noah. Mm -hmm. uh, so even in terms of wrath appeasement, I mean, like I can, or in, in terms of propitiation, like I can make my wife happy by bringing home flowers. It doesn't mean she was necessarily mad at me before, right? Uh, so there, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that we can assume means certain things that has a broader range. And part of the challenge we have is how do we understand the meaning of the term when it has that broader range and we have our various traditions and we have all these different passages of scripture and we have all of these different things from the church fathers and trying to make sense of it. It's hard to do. And there's a reason that we're having these conversations, well, right? I think mm -hmm. that's also where I uh, getting a Jewish context helps uh, because mm -hmm. to this day, like I said, I, when, the more I've studied Judaism, I mean, I have my, uh, my own Hamash right here, uh, my mm -hmm. whole set these the, the, some of these concepts that we now have in our evangelical Christian world that we just lost our fate, feet again uh, just don't exist uh, in a lot of rabbinic writings and we also don't see that in so a lot of the early church um, legal language does not mean PSA it just it just doesn't by definition I don't I, so, so I guess I'm if you want to bring the Jewish concepts into it, I think that's a great time to pivot towards the Old Testament context. We should. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Let me, Josh. That's let probably me, Dr. Wonder. Shepherd's jam anyway. He's probably <laughs> tired of <laughs> hearing us pontificate. I agree. Let me just, so I just want to read this one paragraph in Murray Harris because it has to do with 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15. Yeah. And then, Josh, maybe we can talk about it later. Yeah, sure. Um, if, uh, mm -hmm. if, if we need to. So Murray Harris writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. Paul is giving the reason why Christ's love governs him in everything. That who pair bears a substitutionary sense here, and in the repeated who pair pontone apethanon in verse 15 is shown by the conclusion uh, Paul draws, therefore all died. The death of Christ was the death of all human beings, pontes, because he was dying the death they deserved. He was acting both on behalf of and in the place of all people. He represented them by becoming their substitute. However, in the case of Huper Auton, in verse 15b, mere representation must be in mind if this phrase qualifies both to apothontani and to egerthenti. So, um, yeah. the so, resurrection, since Paul never portrays the resurrection of Jesus as being in the place of believers. Right. Yeah. So, th that, that that's that's my point, is, is that... that it's, it's not that it can't have the substitutionary connotations to it. It's that mm -hmm. that needs to be argued, not mm -hmm. just just insisted upon because that meaning is part of its semantic range. And I think mm -hmm. that's the, the, the challenge that I have when I run into a lot of these things is sometimes people will say, that's what it means. And I'm like, no, that's not what it means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's one of Why the possible meanings. That? Now yeah, we yeah. need to look at the context to understand it. And, mm -hmm. and that's what you're doing there when you're looking at it and saying, okay, now in this context, it, it clearly means substitution. In this context, it clearly doesn't mean substitution. And then we have to try to bring, okay, now that we know both of those are possible, what does it mean in these passages where it's being right. used and we can see it one way or the other and which one seems to be more faithful to the text? Plus, right. again, to be substitutionary uh, is fine. 
I, I have no problem with some substitutionary discussion. The, the point of penal, penal substitutionary atonement, so it's in the name, so it has baggage. Penal substitutionary atonement is saying that, that he took like a retributive substitution right. um, uh, of, God's, of God's retribution, right? So um, not like representative language as Josh, Joshua and I have been discussing. I think it would be really useful if we made a, uh, like a more clear uh, distinction of the implication between being a substitute for a penal representation versus being a representation uh, in, in the way that, that you guys were talking about, David represented Israel in fighting Goliath. He did that in their stead. Uh, uh, and there was, there was something like a substitution, but it wasn't in relation to a legal punishment, right? Sure. And so I think if, if, if we can kind of define a little bit further uh, or more clearly the way that we're seeing the idea of substitution being representation or substitution being, uh, uh, let's say, a one-to-one -one place taking, where, where, like you said, if I, if I take for you a punishment, then you don't also take that punishment. And I think this kind of yeah. ties in also to earlier so we were talking about the second death. Is that penal substitution Christ taking the second death for those who believe? Is yeah. that how far this goes? And I'm kind of because I, I we've 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 covered a lot be. of ground, and I feel like the the confusion is living right there. Where if we're going to collapse the idea down of representation and substitution into one thing, well, and, and then and that, that kind of one to one things. is precisely where some of the logic comes, where you mm -hmm. have people arguing that Jesus was damned by the Father. <laughs> Right. And, um, and that's part of the reason I'm, I'm, I'm kind of incensed by that idea is that that the, the logic there tends to want to go if it's one to one, then it needs to balance the scales. And if it needs to balance the scales and we're talking about people being damned for eternity, well, then Jesus must have been damned for some time in order to pay for that. But because he's infinite, maybe it counts. Like that's the kind of math that gets involved when people get into that kind of really pointed substitutionary thinking. Unless conditional um, immortality is true, then Jesus would have ceased to exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that, that would be a different equation. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, but uh, that's not, that's clearly not the, the equation that was in Calvin's head when he was thinking about this. Or yeah, I mean, so. the, or the other aspect of that, like you said, if you keep doing the one to one ratio, then if God's wrath is satisfied, then why does anyone go to hell at all? Um, unless you believe it that he only satisfies. Right. Uh, yeah. So either le would lead, in my mind, either leads to universalism or limited atonement that God died, uh, that he only satisfied some of his wrath oh, for his which, elect. Thank right. you for bringing that up. Just super, super quick comment. The, the, the quotes that Jeremiah read from mm -hmm. Athanasius, mm -hmm. go back and read them and, and, and oh, yeah. listen to them and listen for limited atonement. Mm -hmm. What you will find is him talking about exactly not limited atonement. Okay, side comment, done. Yep. <laughs> Sherman, you and I both were like, irony. <laughs> Dr. Shepard, you've been really quiet during this whole exchange. Do you have any thoughts oh. concerning what oh, we've talked about and then we can maybe get into Leviticus? It's been fun listening. <laughs> um, uh yeah, I have a, like a thousand and one thoughts. So I'm not <laughs> sure what to give priority to. Um, We've been going but, on for a while. Can, can if you, you want to give a few thoughts, please do. Please. Yeah. yeah I, I was going to ask Dr. Shepard, can you, can you weigh in on the whole distinction that I was just asking about between substitution and representation in the way? Because I asked this specifically of Jeremiah in the last episode, and he said, we make a distinction, but not a separation at all. We, we, and he's condensing those two ideas together. Whereas I think that Will and Josh are both saying that separation 
is 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 necessary because of its implications. So if I'm following, I I think that's where the contention really lives. So yeah, uh, yeah, do you have anything that you could offer? I think to kind of reconcile the idea of condensing together the substitution penally rather than substitution representationally. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I guess I'd had to say that um, I, I think that there are definitely different kinds of substitution. And that's one thing that Gather Cole gets into that into in, in that book that you referred to, um, uh, Joshua, um, Joshua Sherman, that is. Um, and, and that we can talk about a representational substitution. Um, whether whether we like it, whether we end up on that um, is another question. But yeah. by the very by the very nature of the incarnation, uh, Jesus is entering into human experience. Yes. Uh, when he dies on the cross, he's dying a death that people also die. Mm -hmm. So, in that extent, to that level, we're talking representation. Um, I think the substitutionary comes in with regards to the fact that, that Jesus in that death does something for humanity that humanity cannot do for itself. Uh, there is no indication in scripture that because a person dies, they have atoned for their sin. Uh, they haven't made up. Uh, they haven't reconciled. Uh, they have simply been punished and that's it. And so what, that's where I think that the uh, the substitutionary uh, aspect comes into play. The, so because, this is part of why why I, I don't like the punishment and death language is that then you start getting into these ideas of, you know, what about the, the baby that was was, you know, dies in the womb or dies a few days? Like, is that a punishment? And I, that's something what? that I brought like, up in a conversation oh, that with hurts. Judy Martin in the past. Yeah. You yeah. Were talking about the yeah. idea of like a, that all death being punitive in some sense, right? Because of an inherited guilt from Adam is the federal headship was the context of that conversation. Mm -hmm. There's a very similar question that I asked was, is it that God is performing a capital punishment execution on a baby? And he literally said, death yes, is a punishment by default. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, yeah, like, I don't abort babies, uh, but also apparently they're guilty enough and being punished. That, that, that sees a, so. another reason why Augustinian original sin is, silly so i don't want to push that point too far but i i just i heard that and i i had to respond to it i guess um sorry please go ahead oh that's all right that's all right um i'm i'm just making the point that that yeah. that there's going to be by default a representational character to what jesus does in the incarnation absolutely but beyond that i think it's also um substitutionary in that the death christ dies goes beyond what we can do for ourselves and our own deaths totally believe and, that too yeah 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 so i think i think there has to be a, a kind of a blend of the substitutionary represent uh, representative and um and so in, in that regard i i think we're dealing with a couple of concepts that we can't necessarily iron out very neatly and get good creases in the pair of pants <laughs> uh, I think we just had to recognize that there's going to be some overlap. So then I guess but, that but, then, but I still yeah. want to talk about substitutionary. It's, so would, would real quick, yeah. would John like 1033 be, be a good example of how they both kind of blend together whenever Jesus is talking about he dies in behalf of the sheep 
it w- would that be a place that one would go to kind of see that blending or would you have another uh, passage in mind? Uh, well, well uh, I, I guess there's that, but I, I think even when you, <clears throat> uh, um, I, I think we're heading this direction here to talk about um, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Right. And um, several scholars uh, in particular, I, I think of Jay Sklar in his dissertation on the, on the whole meaning of Kaper, um, he argues quite strongly that we should understand that in the sacrificial system, it is substitutionary and it is penal, but it is it is not the eradication of the entire penalty. It's, it's a mitigated penalty um, in that the offerer may already, when the offerer brings a sacrifice for their sins, uh, they have their sins atoned for, um, and there is a mitigation of the penalty, but that doesn't mean there's no penalty at all. Uh, so, you know, the so, person uh, that that person is still going to die. That's still going to happen. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, then, is it the second death? Because that was kind of part of my question too. Is it the second death that Christ took upon Himself penally, so that believers? would not experience that second death uh, or because obviously we all still die mortally in our bodies, but our eternity is something that's granted to us in bodies that are greater and built for eternity. Let's say yeah, more yeah. appropriated to the state of our soul in unity with Christ. Uh, is that, is, are you saying that the penal substitution was not necessarily him, the incarnation, but on the taking on of that, that second death, is that because I'm I'm trying to like appropriate where the where the the, yeah, the penalty yeah. lives outside of the just the mere representation idea? Right. Gather Cole in that same book has a chapter on yeah. Um, why do why do people still die? Why do people still die? Yeah. And his argument is that when we when we're talking about Christians, there's a strong tendency in the New Testament to euphemize the language of death with regards to Christians. Uh, they are asleep. Um, they are, um, well, in, in fact, um, uh, Gather Cole doesn't mention this, but I think even, even of uh, Jesus and John 11 uh, saying, the one who believes in me will never die. But then he goes on to say, and even if they die, or he didn't <laughs> actually say it that way, but, but yeah. when the, if they die, they will live. And so you had to almost kind of blend those two statements together. And I think that what um, Gather Cole is trying to argue, and, and I think that text in John 11 supports it, is that what Jesus' death ends up doing is making the first death um, not everlasting for the believer. Hmm. In fact, Jesus can even state strongly, the one who believes in me will never die, um, which I take it to mean will not die forever and ever, will not die ultimately. Mm. Um, I don't know if that answers yeah. the question, but that's, that's as far as I can go along, I think, in provide, trying to provide an answer. So one of the things I think we run into is, is that when we talk about it, we can't help but bring very kind of modern ideas to it. And our understanding of death is very biological. Uh, and But when you see the way that, that you know, 
author, author of Hebrews talks about this when you see the way that, uh, you know, in Revelation one eighteen, Christ says he ha- he holds the keys of death and Hades, right? Uh, when you you look at the way that uh, the early church looked at this, you know, there's a lot of talk about Hades uh, in in liturgy in in the Greek church because that's their word for Sheol, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Septuagint. That's how it was rendered, um, and. I think maybe what's going on here is a sense of not so much that we will never die, right? Because we do have mortal bodies. And I, I think that's why we die. We were given mortal bodies. We, we reproduce humans that have mortal bodies. Those bodies decay and they die, right? Jesus but, comes but, back first, Oh, well, yeah, right. Um, but, <laughs> but the difference being that death cannot hold us, right? That, yeah. that when when Jesus went into, into Hades, when he conquered Hades, what you then see is that the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. You have ideas about Jesus leading captives in his train, leading the righteous dead up into the presence of God and spirit. And the language that we have about falling asleep in Eusebius, especially, there's always a location to that language. So the location is where is their body sleeping? Right. It's not I don't think that's actually talking about soul sleep. I don't think it's talking about um, sleep in the in, in falling asleep as a, as a euphemism. I think it's saying this is where their body is resting, awaiting the resurrection, the uniting of their body mm-hmm. and their and their spirit that is in the presence of God. And the reason that we can say that we don't die is that we are not held by Sheol or Hades anymore. We go into the presence of God because of the work of Christ. Does I think that that's a fair representation. Okay. Um, that, that's just a, a slightly different way of looking at it than, than what, yeah, what Gather yeah. Cole laid, laid out. But I, if, I think it's another way to look at it. And, and that's personally what I, what I think is going on there. Hmm. I, I think the thing with the substitution versus representation thing is, is that if we want to get stuck on that and say it can only be one or the other, I think that's true when we're talking about a singular event for a singular purpose. Right. So if we're talking about, you know, David and Goliath, like, you know, in the moment when he's fighting Goliath, he is the substitute. No one else is with him. Right. But but it's also representational because it's on behalf of and they join him in the battle later. Right. So if you look at it only in terms of, you know, this one singular event, there's one singular purpose. Is it substitution representation? I don't think you can say it's both at the same time. But I, I think if we look at it and say, uh, if we look at the the events that are happening and this event, this is representation, this is substitution, and, and the purposes that are involved, I think we can say something is representation and substitution in, in, in the same, not at the same time for the same thing, but at the same time with the same event uh, for the same purpose, it's one or the other, right? Um, but it it, it gets very, very specific when you start asking these questions. And I think it's why we're confused because we want to look at the moment instead of the story. And if we put it in terms of the story, we can see the moments where it's substitution, where it's representation more clearly. And I think that's what we see is that, that Christ, um, you could look at it like this. Um, and, and I love this actually. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm preaching now. Um, <laughs> one of the ways that I, I think we see in the Old Testament, something that, that, that really plays out what, what Jesus did on the cross. Um, if you look at um, Goliath and his armor and what he represented, being a giant, being an Anakim, being of the Nephilim, right? The connections that all of that had with the bronze armor, the, 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 the metal before the, the, the collapse, right? All of this antediluvian stuff he is is being positioned as kind of the quintessential evil. And then you have 
David, the, the Messianic king, right? The Davidic king here is the one who, A, slays Goliath with a rock, right? Knocks him down, right? I guess not slays him, but knocks him to the ground with a rock. God, Christ, both being referred to, you know, like the Old Testament, we see we see God referred to as the rock. In, in the New Testament, we have Jesus referred to as the stumbling stone in the rock. So you have him knocked down, right, with the rock. Then you also have David taking his sword and killing him, beheading him. So you have this, this quintessential representative of evil and death being killed with his own weapon, right? And, and, and in the services of the church, you have the, very much this idea of, you know, the Paschal Tropari, and it's, you know, trampling death by death. Death is actually the weapon by which death is killed. <laughs> um, and and so, also like, that, oh, just, to, just, just yeah. to note too, that same sword that killed Goliath was mm -hmm. kept in inside the, the, the temple as a relic, the yes. same way we keep a cross. I think that mm -hmm. that's relevant. Um, yeah. I, 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 I hasten to, to, to add that we're, we're pushing time here, so we should probably <laughs> jump to Leviticus. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, Sorry. Leviticus four. Take it away, Doctor Shepherd. I'm preaching. Well, I'm not sure what to what to um, to say. Are, are we referring to some aspect of that chapter in particular? Yeah, Sherman, do you got I a question? I want all of or? it in thirty seconds. Go. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think for me, the biggest question I have is that that when we talk about atonement as Christians. Almost always what we mean in our heads is what Jesus did on the cross, right? And then we bring that back and we read in Leviticus and we talk about atonement being for sins and we go, we know what this means, right? And I, it's way more complicated than that because you have the, the, the term atonement being used to describe what happens in the purification ceremony after a woman gives birth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's atonement for sins? It's a no. sin to give birth. Right. Uh, no, like, right. <laughs> that's the logic that I think if, if we hold too tightly to that kind of connection that's in our heads, we get into weird spots. And so this is, again, where for me, I look at it and I say, I think what we're talking about is sacred space. We're talking about cleansing that enables people to, to enter back into sacred space safely so that God doesn't have to leave to keep them safe. And and that kind of expiatory language is, is mostly what's in view here when you're talking about atonement, because it's not only for sins, but it's also for the taint of sin. It's also for various diseases. It's also for childbirth and other things that involve, you know, fluids that are life giving now being outside mm -hmm. of where they're supposed to be, which is, is, is a form of death. Um, that's the kind of connectivity that I think we see. And, and so I guess for me, I would I would want to talk through when we talk about atonement, what does it mean? And okay. what, how, can we consistently say the same thing about what it means with sin and with um, impurity? And if we're not going to be consistent, then why are we doing different things? And, and what's the nuance there that enables us to do that okay. properly? All right. Mm. All right. Um, uh, the, uh, I guess the first thing that I would like to just mention here is that during the course of the broadcast, there's been a lot of reference to uh, what Jews believe. And... Um, uh, that that's problematic for for a whole number of reasons. Um, uh, I, I think of the saying that says that if you put two Jew, if you put two Jews into a room, you're going to have three opinions. And I think that, <laughs> that, that 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 there's a there's a problematic there because Judaism, no more than Christianity today, is monolithic. You can't just refer to the Jewish people and say they believe this. They don't believe this. Uh, that just isn't the case. And so, for example, with reference to 
the whole idea of atonement in particular, uh, probably the two um, best commentaries on Leviticus uh, written by Jewish scholars in the last 20, 30 years. You've got Jacob Milgram, um, a tremendous, outstanding scholar, um, also a rabbi. And then you've got Baruch Levine, um, also tremendous, outstanding scholar, also a rabbi. And they were both convinced, absolutely, that Kippur, to atone, means to purge, to wipe away sin, to purify, and it means to ransom. It, it saves the life of the offerer from the wrath of God. So now when they, you say ransom, are we using that term in the same kind of context we see in the Exodus, where God says, I will ransom you with my, my mighty right hand? Yes. Right? Okay. And why did he ransom them? Because they were in slavery. He ransomed them because they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Oh, sure. sure. Because, yeah. And, but and the need for the ransom was because they were in slavery. Yeah. But, but, they, but they were in slavery. But why were they in slavery? And see, the interesting thing is when you go to Joshua 24, when you go to Ezekiel 20, which preserve other Exodus traditions, um, the Jews are not a righteous people. Or the, I should say the Israelites at that point. The Israelites are not a righteous people in Egypt. Uh, they are not righteous. They are not holy. Uh, the reason God redeems them is because they happen to come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he redeems them. He makes a distinction between the Egyptians and between the Israelites because he gives instructions to the Israelites as to putting this door, this blood on the doorpost. If they had not done that, they too would have suffered the wrath of God on the on that night. And so, well, that's, and it's interesting to note too that that I don't think what we see there is something where that instruction was given only to people that were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and could only apply to them, because we actually have people with Egyptian names coming out of yes. uh, of Egypt with them. So uh, there's almost a sense in which that's the point where God redefines what it means to be an Israelite according to covenant and not just according to descendants. Is that right? Yeah. Accurate? Yeah. Okay. I, I think it's fair enough to mention that, though I think it's also quite a minority population there. Sure. For the, for the most part, it was Israelites and Egyptians. Egyptians were killed. Israelites were not. They averted the wrath of God by putting the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Uh, so what what we what we see in the sacrificial system and uh, Mil Milgram was was quite um, uh, adamant about that and that is that all the sacrifices have a propitiatory element to them whenever the offerer brings their offering uh, whether it be the burnt offering the grain offering the peace offering the sin offering the guilt offering that offering pur purifies and it also expiates and it propitiates. Um, so even if we say, even if we want to make a distinction between expiation and propitiation, which I think we should, expiation is for the purpose of propitiation. Um, propitiation is appeasing the deity 
and avoiding the deity's either actual or potential wrath against the offerer and against the whole community of Israel. So I, I, I guess when I, when I look at that, it's, it seems very clear that this, the sacrifices are for different purposes in different ways, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, because, um, you know, when someone is, wants to enter in to, to give a Thanksgiving offering, you know, they're also bringing uh, an, uh, a burnt offering as a way of like kind of, you know, can I come in the door of your house, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so they're bringing multiple sacrifices at the same time for, the, for these different purposes. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I have a hard time looking at that and saying, it seems like the the propitiation is always in view there, um, and 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 maybe maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I, I guess in this case I'm going to disagree with Milgram on that, mm -hmm. um, and partly because when we're talking about a a a, a Thanksgiving offering, a communion offering, what we're talking about primarily is 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 literally that it's communion, it's, it's being in the presence and in, in the company mm -hmm. of a deity in the in ancient sense, world and in this bread. case god right it's breaking bread with god is the idea and and all of the sacrifices um you know they they have an element of 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 food in them somehow whether people are partaking of the food or not uh, there, there's there's an element of food and and one of the things that i think really differentiates this for me is when you see the 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 temple and the tabernacle consecrated what happens when they bring up the sacrifices, right? You don't have the fire from heaven come down and consume the animals whole. You have the fire from heaven come down and consume the portion that's been prepared on the offering the way that God wanted it to be prepared. So you have literally food placed on the altar consumed by God rather than the life of the animal taken by God. Because the and, idea is uh, when you're sharing food with one another, you're sharing in covenant with one another, which is why Paul says if someone's mm -hmm. falling into these sins, don't even uh, yeah. with such a one. Do not have, you're sharing in covenant And, and with don't them. have covenant with demons. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's only one of the five offerings. Sure. The four offerings, the only, well, for the burnt offering, no one eats it. For the grain right, offering. It's all given to God. Yeah. The priests yeah. eat it. For the peace offering or the well-being offering or whatever you want, how you want to refer to it, mm -hmm. it's God, priests, and people. Mm -hmm. um, for the um, sin offering, it's um, uh, God only. Uh, if it's the priest's offering or the congregation offering, if it's an individual offering, then it's God and the priest. And the same thing is the case when the, with the guilt offering. Uh, but even, even there, we have to look at the whole procedure mm -hmm. as atoning um, there are those who want to argue that only one particular element is atoning so some people will say that that it's the death of the of the animal others will say it's the blood being put on the on the um, uh, on the altar burnt offering or on the altar of incense or even on the on the uh, atonement cover mm -hmm. others will argue that the atonement is the smoke uh, rising up in the air to God so he can smell the pleasing aroma. Mm -hmm. And each one of those is an element, but the but the, uh, the whole procedure is the yeah. atonement. Uh, the bringing the bringing of the animal, putting your head hand on the head of the animal, uh, slaying it, um, taking its blood, manipulating it. Um, and and as I mentioned the, the last time, even the priest uh, eating the meat, of the sin offering and or the guilt offering that is seen 
as an act of atonement. The whole procedure is atonement. Hmm. And that's why it all has to be done right, or there's a real problem. So if that's, I, I, I guess the struggle that I have is if atonement is specifically what Jesus did in order to die in our place so that our sins could be forgiven, mm -hmm. how does that idea of atonement with the same kinds of things going on in the sacrifices tie into atonement for impurity, for ritual impurity? Because it seems to me like the same kinds of things are happening. People are, are literally bringing sin offerings. And, and mm -hmm. a, I think a better translation of that is purification offering because of, of where chathat comes from. Um, it, it seems like what's being what's being done, what's being common is there needs to be the cleansing of, of sacred space in order to enable God and people to interact safely. And that when that is done, then we have the reunification of, of humanity and God uh, whether it's in the camp or, or you know, whether we're talking about you know Jesus and and, and the believers, whatever it is, it's it's about that reunification, uh, and that that's I think maybe the primary sense of atonement, and then it's the the question of what needs to happen for that to happen in in different situations, and mm -hmm. I feel like I would expect if if what we're talking about is atonement is that. And that same thing is done, whether we're talking about cleansing impurity or whether we're talking about um, guilt offerings or sin offerings or whatever. Um, why are we doing the same things for different results in those sacrifices if atonement? <laughs> I, I'm trying to, to, to figure out how to phrase this question, <laughs> but it's like it feels like we're doing the same thing and then we're getting different results, but we can't tell you why. Right. So if we do a sin offering for this lady, she's now purified after childbirth. If we do a sin offering for this person, their sins are forgiven. Why is it two different things going on there? And why is it that death has to be involved in both? And if death is involved in the sin part as a punishment, is it a punishment because in, in terms of the purification for, for the woman giving birth? Why is it a punishment? Is that a substitute? Like, th this is the kind of, of thing that I have trouble understanding when we, when we try to bring the substitutionary penal, penal substitutionary atonement into this idea and say that, that atonement always means this. And I don't, I'm not saying that you, you're doing this, but mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like people, we do that very easily as, as Christians now, looking back into the sacrifices. And if atonement is about bringing things together and it happens with impurity and sin, where's the common ground, right? Where, why, why anyway, um, <laughs> I know it's like a bunch of questions kind of all thrown together. Sure, I guess sure. I'm getting tired. Answer these 16 questions. All right. <laughs> well, well, uh, the, um, this, this, the, uh, the purification offerings that are described yeah. in Leviticus, um, 12 to 15, mm -hmm. um, which cover the whole gamut of, of uh, childbirth, uh, blood discharges, mm -hmm. uh, what we what we call leprosy, but it's some kind of skin disease. We're we're not. I mean, it's, it's probably a, a variety of skin diseases, and even molds in a person's house. Yeah. Why do these things happen? And um, um, Milgram, for one, and many others, and I myself as well, argue that impurity happens because there is sin in the world. Hmm. It's not necessarily the person who becomes impure that is who, who has sinned. 
but but already and see, and, see, and, and this is where we go back to Genesis 3 um, or, or let's say Genesis 1 to 3 um, childbirth giving birth um, was never meant to be a source of impurity uh, it was a it was a blessing um, be fruitful multiply fill the earth but because of the sin of the first human pair now things that are good now have something bad attached to them and so genesis 3 the curse on the woman all of a sudden because of her sin there is going to be pain in her childbirth and so all of a sudden now childbirth has a taint attached to it and there are just all kinds of other things that, that we could bring in there and I know is, is that a, a moral issue or is that an issue it, of security it's a ritual it's a it's a ritual physical impurity mm -hmm. but it has this sin background to it so you have that first of all uh, I, I think that we need to keep that in mind that 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 the woman has not sinned in giving childbirth and the child has not sinned either uh yet there has to be a purification offering presented uh for her and or the child there's some there's some debate about that particular issue yeah so so, so there's a ritual sin impurity connection I, I, I guess when I look at that, part of what it seems to me is, is that what, you're, what we're talking about primarily is that the process of childbirth involves, um, you know, the loss of fluids that are life. Yes. Yeah. And the fluids that are life being somewhere where they are not is mm -hmm. bad. That's right. basically death. Right. Yeah. In fact, yeah. and so there's, and there's a connection of it to death. I guess where I'm having a hard time seeing it is, is when we're then importing the, the sense of now that means that there's a connection to sin and automatically we're connecting it. Death does not exist if it weren't for sin in, in the priestly symbolic world in the priestly symbolic universe, there would be no death if there weren't sin. So, and is so that the, because so it's the, a punishment so the, or is that because it leads to about, all those chapters are about corpse contamination Mm -hmm. uh, contamination from childbirth, discharges, bodily discharges that are irregular, bodily discharges that, that are that are regular. Women's uh, menstrual cycles, for the, example. Whenever the man and woman have 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 sex, um, mm -hmm. again, that is a command of God: be fruitful, multiply. But now they're because of the of the sin uh, that arose back in back in the garden. Now. There's a taint attached to that. And in that symbolic world, you have to have a purification offered, offering for it. Right. Um, well, this is so, a deal with ritualistically, though, so not morally yes. speaking. It's, it's, it's not morally necessarily for the individual. Now, okay. it could be. And we had to bring that into, in, into play as well. Because for unintentional sins, though, right? Because like, the sin offerings are only for unintentional sins. Uh, no, no, that uh, that's the way it's laid out uh, in the prescription. But when you read through Leviticus four and five, there are some pretty intentional sins listed there, and that's always a conundrum that 
a Leviticus commentator has to has hmm. to um, address when they go through those chapters. Now, some of your shorter commentaries can kind of skirt over it, but there are um, there are, for example, there are prescriptions that talk about deceiving your neighbor. Um, Ha having something in, of yours in their possession and you and you don't return it to them and you don't return it intentionally. And so that's that's part of the problem too. They're, they are about uh, unintentional and intentional sins. And what um, what uh, several commentators have argued is that when you look at the intentional sins, what we have in those chapters is a gracious act of God whereby he takes sins, that are intentional. In fact, they're even referred to as with the Hebrew word ma'al, which um, normally refers to the idea of rebellion, treason, treachery. So even intentional sins are chalked up as intentional ones by being made expiable by a purification or, or a guilt offering. Um, but in any case, uh, uh, so, so on the one hand, as already mentioned, you have the case of a woman giving giving childbirth and, and nevertheless having to offer a purification offering. Mm -hmm. In that case, there is no understanding at all that the woman has sinned, but the act that the act of childbirth itself has, by virtue of its connection with death, also has a connection to the to the sin environment of the world, uh, the the the, uh, the impurity. Uh, connection. Would, would now, we say that that in that case we have atonement happening without forgiveness of sins, because yes. forgiveness isn't needed? Okay. No. Yeah. Okay. Forgiveness. That forgiveness would not be a would be not be an operative uh, element there. Okay. And and then in number sixteen, when we talk about atonement, you have um, Leviticus. And, uh, sorry, uh, in, in Numbers 16, Number 16 okay. uh, you have, um, you know, Moses telling Aaron to go run through the camp with his censor to make atonement. Yes. So there's no death involved in that making atonement. Right. I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand how that fits into, into this paradigm. And I haven't figured it out yet. So yes, yes, <laughs> I'm asking yes. smarter minds than yes, myself. Sure. Yeah. Um, there, there's a couple of issues there. I think one thing is this is this is a. Um, this is a um, an incident uh, where Moses uh, even tells Aaron to hurry and do this. Mm -hmm. And so he goes to the tabernacle, he gets some coals from the, uh, he goes inside the tabernacle, gets some coals from the incense altar, puts it in a censer, brings it out, and that stops the plague. Um, again, there's no reference to forgiveness there. Um, God is still going to punish that generation, but, but at least temporarily it stops the plague. So then and you what, have atonement what actually happens there for full forgiveness, which is pardon. False. Then you have atonement without forgiveness, right? Really, which is yeah. another interesting question. Cause we always want to think those two are really tightly connected to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, I, I guess you could, I, I guess you could say it's, it's temporary forgiveness or, or, or temporary, um, uh, elimination of the penalty, okay. but I don't. I would. I, I don't even refer to it as forgiveness there. And even at that point, what what seems to to happen is that by what by virtue of what Aaron does, he is in essence taking the tabernacle into the place where the plague is. Okay. Um, 
it's, a, it's an extension of what's already there. And of course, the tabernacle, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering, the, the whole temple and temple or tabernacle at that point, the whole tabernacle and tab, tabernacle apparatus, all the furniture has already been purified by blood atonement. Hmm. So you already have a blood connection there, even though you don't slay an animal on, on the spot. Interesting. Right on, guys. I, man, we could keep going and going oh, and going and going, and going like the Energizer Bunny. Josh uh, Sherman, let's do, so let's do this. We're at the two hour and 24 minute mark. <laughs> yeah. This has been an incredible conversation. So what I want to do is Heck let's yeah. go ahead and wind down with last words, right? And final comments or questions. If you got a question, since we really don't have any from our from our audience if you'd like to get a quick question in for uh will or brian or me or dr shepherd or sherman and everybody on the panel please feel free to do that we will answer them um but sherman we'll go ahead and start with you um with uh with your final closing uh remarks on this episode great episode though by the way guys oh. i love it, it was, this was been so fun but go ahead sherman oh you're putting me on the spot i, I was I I've been, yeah. <laughs> closing thoughts um Do you want me to come back to you? Heretic! No, just <laughs> heresy! Perfect. All the way! My silence is heresy. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I guess for me, as I, I continue to explore this, the, the things that I find interesting to push on are some of the connections that we automatically assume are there. And just asking the question about whether that's, that's true. Um, it doesn't mean they're not. Right. But asking the question because, you know, it's like, okay, well, let's examine this. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I look at something like the cross, when I look at what Jesus does there, and I think about it in a framework like PSA, that, well, yes, it uses lingu legal language and maybe it's not entirely contained to that. But, but the main kind of framework for it seems to be a kind of equation. That, that is more legal, that is more focused on justice. I don't think that goes far enough into, into what needs to be done to actually save people um, because of what we see is, is, is not just like we've sinned and broken a rule, but we've fallen short of the glory of God, which connects into the image of God, which has to, it's ontological. It's impacting who we are and our ability to be who God created us to be. And that ability needs to be restored and it needs to be brought back uh, to bear. And so for me, I think a good example of this tying into the sacred space is the woman that had the bleeding condition. What the law could do is it could bring her back into proper relationship with the community and with sacred space once that bleeding condition had stopped and the time had been had had been taken to to the gap you know how, i forget how many days but she'd had it stopped there's this many days and now she can go back she can show the priest and they can say yes now you can be brought into proper relationship that to me feels a lot like the kind of legal stuff that we talk about a lot of times when we talk about forgiveness in the cross what jesus actually does with her is he not only enables her to then go do that, to deal with the legal thing, he not only stops the bleeding in the moment 
so that she can deal with that and you know stops the impurity right but he actually stops the source of the problem he heals the source of the problem and when i think about the issues that we face as humanity being mortal being in a world that's 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 tainted by sin being being people that are corruptible because of mortality and sin i feel like the 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 problem goes deeper than just a legal declaration and and so that's where i have trouble looking at the way that a lot of people understand justification <laughs> and the cross and talk about the debt being fully paid and all of this because i think there's more to the story and there's more that has to go into it and if there's mm. more then we can't look at the what jesus did to pay for sins on the cross as being the finished work of christ uh that then deals with everything right you, you either have more to the story or you don't and i feel like a lot of times with, with when we're talking about penal substitution or atonement what we have is this is the whole story and, and so that's where i you know a i'm like no there's more to the story uh, and then i guess the second thought i would have is just the logic that the psa puts forward has brought a lot of people to think some things about what the father did with jesus with the with the son that i don't think we need to go to and i i would one want to people to to, to pause on taking it to those legal uh, the, those logical implications but then i also want to just ask the question about whether the premise that then allows people to take those logical leaps should be looked at and questioned and examined in depth before we accept it and run with it and end up getting to the place where we have people like calvin and piper and macarthur and sproul and hodge talking about the father damning jesus the father killing jesus the father sending him to hell to burn so that he could balance the scales of our debt uh so i guess th those would be my closing thoughts wow <clears throat> rambling <laughs> two closing thoughts in good, one good closing the, th that gets the stuff out of my head that i still have to say or repeat good job awesome. good job and send me those quotes i would like to, i know you sent me uh maybe a couple on luther earlier but let me see those quotes again i'd like to read them yeah um, but uh dr shepherd we'll go ahead and get your closing okay. uh, remarks on this episode. all right um i'll do a couple of things here um yeah. hopefully i won't take too much time with it uh, but the first one that I would do is, is I want to uh, respond to what uh, Joshua just said. Uh, you keep calling him Sherman, by the way. It's my uh, last name. Is, is that to distinguish him from Joshua from Davidson? Davidson? It yeah, is. And that's also okay. his last name. So, yeah. oh, okay. All right. So I just want to respond to what uh, uh, Joshua Sherman uh, said. And that is that um, uh, by all means, um, we should not take penal substitutionary atonement and make it the understanding of the atonement. I, I fully agree with that. And in fact, um, uh, John Calvin, uh, who you uh, mentioned earlier, um, uh, was insistent on the fact that this penal substitutionary atonement that Christ accomplishes is for the purpose of bringing us into union with himself. And that idea of the mystical union between Christ and the believer, Christ and the church, was more paramount in Calvin than, than was just penal atonement by itself. Uh, so I think that's, that's pretty important. And then also I want to uh, affirm what uh, David uh, said earlier uh, with regards to um, uh, penal atonement language in the church fathers. Uh, I think it definitely is there. 
Um, and I think it's awfully easy to come up with some object objections uh, to seeing that language, which I don't think really hold up. So my last comment, uh, I would love to read a larger section, but my last comment will be to uh, just read something from Chrysostom. Mm -hmm. And uh, so here we go. Um, Chrysostom asked the question, I'm, I'm reading a, 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 a small section of a larger thing that he wrote, but here's what he says. Uh, what did this mediator do? That is Jesus, the work of a mediator. For it is as if two had been turned away from each other. And since they were not willing to talk together, another one comes and placing himself in the middle loosened the hostility of each of the two. And this is also what Christ did. God was, God was angry with us, for we were turning away from God. Christ, by putting himself in the middle, exchanged and reconciled each nature to the other. And how did he put himself in the middle? He himself took on the punishment that was due to us from the Father and endured both the punishment from there, that is from the Father, and the reproaches from here, that is of people. He then goes on to say this, do you want to know how he welcomed each? Christ, Paul says, excuse me, Christ, Paul says, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. You have seen how he received from on high the punishment that had to be borne. Look how also from below he received the insults that had to be borne. The reproaches of those who reproached you, Scripture says, have fallen on me. Haven't you seen how he dissolved the enmity, how he did not depart before doing all, both suffering and completing the whole business, until he brought up the one who was both hostile and at war, brought that one up to God himself, and made him a friend. So I just want to emphasize here, here, here is um, Chrysostom um, very definitely using language about punishment from the Father that was due to us upon mm -hmm. himself. So that's, that's pretty explicit. I mean, that, that satisfies all the demands of what counts as PSA. So yeah. that's my last words. Awesome. Thank you for that, Dr. Shepard. Brian, sure. we, you haven't said, you, you, you've participated a little bit, but, but go ahead with your uh, closing remarks. Uh, yeah, I'm friend. not as long-winded as everyone here, but I've really enjoyed the, the commentary and, and the back and forth. And I just, I, maybe less to say about a closing argument to what we've said as much as I, I think I've just appreciated the camaraderie here and that we can, we can have several different viewpoints and have really interesting questions and really thought provoking answers without hating each other. And I think this is, this is how the body of Christ is supposed to act. And this is how, um, how we have been redeemed to function. And this is Christ-like is to, is to work with each other in unity. And I, I just appreciate the group of guys here and, uh, I've had a lot of fun. Are we allowed to hate David? Amen. I only hated David on a little bit because it was fun, but I love you, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, he stole your line. You always Look, call people heretics on our show. I know. That's all. I, I was really just jealous. So, really so you're just like, oh, <laughs> that was my spot. <laughs> 
it was we'll take it away brother <laughs> no i just wanted to uh reiterate i really appreciate the camaraderie uh this was a lot of fun um some things uh that some things i just i'd encourage people to do as you're reading some of these things is just wonder ask yourself what lenses you're reading with uh ask yourself what context uh, surround it um one of the things that i found uh very interesting was how much christ's death burial resurrection and his freeing us from sin death and satan is often compared to paralleled with the exodus itself and we mentioned the passover and how the blood covers yes. the uh covers the doorpost so that the wrath of god passes over us and is poured out on those who are the unbelievers which would be my position on how the wrath works there but um in all honesty I have really appreciated this um it's been a lot of fun and I really wish we could have had more time to get into uh Leviticus uh there's a lot of things where I'm like <laughs> oh my goodness we didn't get to talk about the two Part goats three. on the day of atonement we get to get talk oh, about yeah. any of that so there's however um I just want to say thanks guys for having us on and uh Chris is Victor for the win. All right, I'm done. <laughs> for, for the win. <laughs> we definitely appreciate having everybody uh definitely will uh we'll have to do a part 3 to get into some of those things. I really believe that needs to happen, but uh Davidson, go ahead Jimmy. Take her away. What you know, you I I am super I I say this a lot, but I am super pleased with how this came out. Like I'm mm -hmm. really Thank you all for for your really. I feel like God directly intervened and answered my prayer from our pregame session there, uh, <laughs> because this was fantastic, and I I can see and feel the presence of the Spirit guiding our minds and tongues as we spoke. That was really fantastic. This whole conversation had a great cadence to it. I feel like um there wasn't a lot said that that didn't need to be said there wasn't a lot of extra space that was taken up uh or too much uh you know just just repetitive well no you said this and no you said like like you said this was all so very uh peaceable and and copacetic like this was a really good conversation but um i i i i want to say as as closing that this this whole topic uh has has made me say something that I don't, I didn't think I ever would say is I now want to read Leviticus again. <laughs> Yay. Uh, and I am, yes. I'm just excited to feel like I want to read Leviticus again. So right. I want to thank you guys all for like putting a fire in my bones <laughs> to learn the law better. Yeah. Uh, but also um, if I can uh, kind of, um, you know, break with the, the, the conversation for just a moment and ask, uh, for some prayer because I was told this is why my camera turned off a couple of times. My wife came in and let me know that my nephew, his name is Ryan. Uh, mm -hmm. he's got an exceptionally high fever right now that medication is not doing anything for. They don't okay. know if it's his, if, if it's a gland in his throat or it has something to do with his teeth. Uh, and his parents are freaking out right now. Uh, and neither of them are believers. And so they're not praying. And I, I really need us to be praying for them. Anybody that's listening, please pray for my nephew, Ryan, because he's not all right. Uh, and also his, uh, my, my wife's sister's, uh, my wife's sister's father-in-law is, uh, having a really aggressive form of cancer that is just being diagnosed. And the doctors gave him weeks to live. And this is just really awful timing for their family mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of believers in my wife's family uh and i'm just kind of you know sitting here noticing that god uses situations like that to really turn people yeah. uh and i i covet all of your guys's prayers so 
uh, I know that's not exactly closing remarks, but uh, just to throw that out there, if if you, if anybody who's listening and any of you guys that are here with me uh, could could you know remember and and pray for my nephew Ryan and also for uh, uh, my my sister in law's father in law, uh, that would be so great, and I, I appreciate it. And this has been a really great conversation, and I feel like. Uh, we do need more. We need more. Um, I, I, I'm excited that if we get another conversation that we're going to bring up the, 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 the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. That part was one of my favorite parts of the conversation with you, Dr. Shepard before. Uh, and, and I got to ask that kind of series of questions about the cleansing of the temple and so forth. And I just, uh, I, I'm really excited to see that come forth. I really want to be uh, 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 in on that, but I'm going to read Leviticus before then. So, uh, yeah, thank you guys so very much. And I am, I'm just, I am ecstatic right now. Uh, but yeah, please, please, uh, make sure to, to, to remember, uh, in prayer. Sure. For sure. We will brother. So we, yeah. so we got to schedule part four. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There uh, you Dav go. Davidson, if you want as well, um, if you want to go through a series of something you can listen to, because sometimes that, that can be easy to absorb, um, Dr. Michael Heiser has a, a series he did on that where he's pulling in a lot from Milgram and from Levine and from um, the, these different scholars that um, that have been mentioned tonight uh, and talks a awesome. lot about the sacred space and, and all of those different things. Um, so it's a good starting point to kind of reorient a bit from we just don't know what to do with any of it to this is probably what <laughs> what most of this would mean to somebody back then in a, in, in a culture like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, also, yeah. Dr. Ryan with Expedition 44 has got a lot of really good stuff on that. This whole playlist on the atonement he has. Can you guys send that to me in our chat so yeah. that I, I can yeah. remember it? Because I, I, no, I'm not going to lie. My brain is you not got a lot going on, dude. Anymore. We're going to pray for yeah, you tonight, okay? There's a lot going on, yes. yeah. So I just, and you I know wanna, what? You know what? Right now, like, hey, look, we got seven guys here, seven Christian men, and I think we should just lift up Ryan in prayer right now. Yeah. Um, and if you guys would just come in agreement and let's just lift him up, dear Lord, I just lift up Ryan and what's going on with him right now. And that this fever is not going down with medication and, you know, the situation, you know, better than any of us, God, you know, the situation that's going on, Lord, and we pray for your healing hand to touch Ryan right now lord and that this fever will go down lord and that you will just be in in that family that you will infiltrate it the way that you see fit lord and we pray for your grace in this situation lord and we pray for the easement of the minds of the family that is involved right now josh's family lord and even his mind you know, having to cut mm -hmm. off and go places and, and listen. And, uh, you know, we just pray for the peace of God that passes all understanding to, to just be in this family right now, Lord. And we also pray for your healing hand of Orion right now, Lord, in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thanks Amen. guys. Thanks. Amen. Well, I mean, for a closing, cause I, I love it when Tyler tells me to have a good night and be like Christ, I'm going to just give my uh, closing statement. Now guys, I, you know, one of the biggest things was I was looking at the church split screen here and these guys, it just reminded me of Samwell and Brian because he was jealous of me. So I have to tell him he's <laughs> Samwell, but uh, will you're like, uh, you're like Frodo, you know, you're, you're bringing the ring and, and, 
you, you know, that's that's an honorable thing. But but I, I love it because we're both uh, a Trinity uh, students here and we rock out and um, I'll see you in the comments. <laughs> but I think what this taught me tonight, guys, and this has been an amazing conversation and there's so much I agree with everybody on, you know, but one thing stands out to me is that Christianity is not shouldn't be monolithic. And I think that you guys attack and, and I mean this in a good way, attack a definition of penal substitution that shouldn't be in the church today. I think historically penal substitution was a lot different. This is why I think we can draw the conclusions of the PSA from various aspects of history. I don't think that I think if someone's looking at just the legal legality of of the words that are used, they're wrong. You know, um, I think there's a lot more going on there. Um, but this also has this also this conversation has also I, I just keep remembering Polycarp and the Bishop of Rome arguing about Easter, you know, and and, and no matter what, they both write in their commentaries that we're not going to agree on this. You know, I got Johannine tradition. Well, I got Petrine tradition here. You know what I mean? But guess what? Guess what? They took the Lord's Supper anyway. And they said, you know, we don't have we don't need uniformity to have unity. We don't. We don't need uniformity to have unity. We love Jesus. And Jesus is the center of this whole conversation. He's the center of not just the conversation. He's the center of our lives. And I think even this 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 topic is so much more broader and i would just caution like even you sherman don't go just one route keep the door open to go to say okay look i can see where psa is and i think you've even said you know i can see where substitutionary tone comes in you know it's kind of been back and forth but i see where you're you're hesitant on the definitions and i applaud that i i say yes don't don't settle for one definition you know, because I think if we do, we become monolithic. We end up. I, I would just, I would just caution against be a monolithic in any aspect because we tend to do it even in our systematics, and I think that's the that that's a danger that that we shouldn't cross. We got to remember that Christianity is also very relational, you know, and there is that aspect of love and mercy and peace, and there's also the aspect of justice and and you know. Uh, um, wrath and all these things come into play and i think they're a lot broader than sometimes we can give them credit for but with that i also say that none of you guys are actual heretics i do play around a lot but i love each and every one of you uh again will i'll see you in our participations in the classes we take uh sherman will always be talking uh and Dr. Shepard, it was great to meet you, and it was actually an honor to hear hear some of the things that, that you had to say. So, Tyler, I'll kick it back to you. Thanks, guys. Yeah, David, I almost forgot that you wasn't a part of that episode that we had with uh, Jeremiah and uh, Dr. Shepard. And so I'm glad you actually got to be able to participate in this and, and listen to the sides. Like I said, I always love it whenever um, two sides can come together and and disagree yes but do it as brian said in a loving christ-like way but will has brian Bodie, dr shepherd joshua sherman my brother 
Joshua Davidson, David Russell, you guys have been 100% on point. I love you all so much, Brian. It was an absolute honor to meet you. Uh, finally, I've heard a lot of good things about you from Will, and they they played out perfectly. And so it was, a, it was fun chatting with you. Dr. Shepard, again, it's always an honor, sir. Sherman, you've got to come back on more, brother, because I love your input. I love how you challenge me on things and stump me live. Like, I love it. So you get me thinking, brother, and I appreciate our conversations. I really do. It's always Davis a two-way street. <laughs> Fair enough. Davidson and Russell, we will see you next time, and we will see you next time. But until then, good night, God bless, and stay like Christ.